Very good, Mark. Appreciate it. I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. Nice to meet you again, Rick. Yep. You too, Dave. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's uh, that, that's the the nature of YouTube. Being the celebrity. <laughs> you talk into the camera, and then. You know, people, you look at the camera, people look, look back at you and they, they uh, think they know you, but I am pretty much exactly like I am on my channel. So, uh, <laughs> no, yeah, no, no. can't, can't use that. Word. <laughs> Yep. Yes, it's all YouTube. So I haven't produced anything in about three years. Um, I get up at five thirty with uh, to get my kids ready for school. I've got twelve, ten, and six-year-old um, boy and two girls. So my wife and I make lunch and breakfast for them. And I drive my two girls to school. Then I come back and start working on stuff at about nine 30. And I work until, I don't know, 11, 12, one at night, pretty much seven days a week. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Travel. I mean, I don't travel that much. I have a bunch of trips coming up. I, I, uh, I mean, this year I've been to London, I've been to Italy. I've been, uh, been to LA a couple times. Um, been to New York a few times. Just came back from New York last week. So yeah, I I, I do travel around um, usually for for events, things like that. That uh, usually related to the channel. So gotcha, cool. gotcha. That's yeah, all, that's awesome. I, someone was writing that they were having a problem hearing me, um, which hopefully I I, I can hear you. I yeah. can hear you perfectly. Yeah, I don't know. I'm hopefully, hopefully, whatever I just clicked maybe fixed that. Um, but let me hear you guys also. Let me just check, check levels and stuff like that. Check one, well, two. Fine. Hello. All right. Sounds very sounds very balanced to me. All right. I'm gonna write people and say, "Can you hear me now?" Let's see. I usually tell people to refresh their browser sometimes. Yeah, it could have been me. Maybe I did something. Um, there he is, they say. All right. Okay, whatever. Well, welcome, Rick Beato, and whatever you missed, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's the beautiful technology glitch. Uh, it, it, shit happens. I, I, what can I do, man? It's, uh, it's Monday, and I, <laughs> I worked all day. Um, maybe I didn't press a button. So, um, so anyway, well, Rick, welcome aboard. Thanks for, thanks for joining the show. And, um, so yeah, so keep going. Tell, tell us. 
So, so I get up at, you know, like I said, I get up at five 30, I start working on videos about nine 30, 10 o'clock. And uh, I have an, I have an assistant. He comes in about 10 o'clock and, um, and I never have any videos finished. I usually start a video and I try and finish it in one day. Um, so wow. if I have a video that's doing well, I did a chili peppers video yesterday. Uh, for, I have a series called what makes this song great. I've done about 70, it was my 75th episode yesterday. And, uh, so I'll usually take a day off after that. Uh, but I make about four to five videos a week and I've, I have 700 and some odd videos on my channel, something like that. Yeah. 730. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work in three years. It's pretty, pretty good. Yeah, Absolutely. That is. And three years to get a million followers. You must be doing something right. I mean, was it three three years really just start or was it longer than that that you that you started? No, it was three years. I put up my first video uh June eighth of two thousand sixteen. That's insane. That's amazing. I had about well, I had about, I don't know, a hundred followers at the time. They're mostly my family members and then some a few other people. Right. Well, I, wa um, I watched one of your videos where you said, I think you started with, uh, so your mom can see your, your kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. My son, Dylan, I started, well, I started in 2009 and, and, uh, cause, uh, you couldn't really send videos easily back then, you know, cause they were, the files were too big, too big. emails. Yeah. You couldn't yeah. email them. So I called my brother and I said, Hey, how do I send this video to mom? He goes, you just get on YouTube, upload it and send her a link. And I was like, what's YouTube? He goes, it's, it's good. It's a, it's a website where you can share videos. Just go up, sign up for it. And I signed up for it. I sent my mom a link. I called her on the phone and she watched it. So I started uploading videos of, of my son, then my daughter when she was born. And that's what I, only thing I used YouTube for. Yeah. I did. So. I did the same thing with a bunch of videos of which now my son's older. He actually went on YouTube and deleted these videos of, <laughs> of him. He was like, yeah, I, me dancing with Michael Jackson, turning my shirt off. You know, he's like, no, that's that's got to go. <laughs> I have I, I have all these videos still hidden on my channel, too. That, uh, uh, but but uh, when I when I uploaded my first video before I uploaded my first video for my channel, I hid all my kids videos and everything and and uh and then just started from there. But yeah, I did, I did 340 videos the first year. So almost every day. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. While I was producing full time. That's, that's, uh, impressive, impressively dedicated to. <laughs> it was, uh, it was, I mean, I'd be falling asleep. I made a lot of mistakes in the videos where I'd leave edits and where I'd walk out of the room, walk back in and, and, I'd upload them for the morning and then a friend of mine would call me up. And he's like, Hey, there's this, I think you, you screwed up a video, uh, edit. You're walking in with, and I'd watch it and I'd take the video down and put it back up, fix it, and mm. go, on with, go on with my session. Yeah. So, well, which is probably what I'm going to end up doing after we go off. I'm going to fix when my audio wasn't working and <laughs> I'll get that all. You just chop it out. Right. I'm just going to chop it. it. Right? I, you know, which reminds me, do you, do you ever use the, uh, the beta version of, uh, the, whatever you know the youtube editor or the, the have you ever used that thing i've not used it no oh it's horrible it, it's still it's been in beta for like a year so it's like you know where you get you can actually edit your you video. know actually that's not true no i've done it a couple times i've done it a couple times it's really counterintuitive the way it works mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, you can really bad the video down just to edit it and yes yeah it's it was a it's Anytime you have to make it, yeah, so. 
We'll see. Hopefully it'll work. Maybe maybe I'll get lucky. <laughs> so. I, I mean, I stake videos down all the time and put them back up, though. That was I mean, I didn't have any. Nobody watched my channel at the time anyway. So in the first first few months, I think it took me about uh, three months till I had a video that hit a thousand views. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah, it's it's horrible if you have to take a video down after you got a whole bunch of views and I have to put it back up again. It's just like you, you're just like ah, no, yeah. don't want to do that. Yeah, no way. that that hurts. It definitely hurts. But hopefully, you know, you'll get a lot. I mean, your videos do fine, <laughs> especially. I mean, at a million views, that's. I mean, that's just amazing. I mean, a million followers. That's just an amazing thing, and it's still growing. So clearly, you're doing something right. You've got a you know, a great line of videos. I mean, the what makes this song great series to me is, you know, that's where I found you because I, I and it was the Van Halen one specifically. It was like, oh, OK, I can dig this, <laughs> you know, like, and I watched it. And then it led to, you know, the other ones and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's really impressive. Um, you know, congratulations on it. Thank you. Yeah, those are those are fun to make. It's, I you know, about to. 10 years ago or more, more than that. Somebody gave a couple, a couple different pe people gave me a couple thousand multi-tracks and, uh, uh, that I just had on hard drives sitting around. And so there one day, go. yeah. So one day I was, I was, uh, uh, I actually have a second YouTube channel that I don't tell people about that I use. Well, I just told people about it, but I have a second, <laughs> I have a second YouTube channel that is called Rick Beato live. And I've got about 20,000, 20, 24,000 followers on it. But oh. as people that start following me in the first year of my channel. So I always go there to test stuff out, like to see if things are going to get pulled down and, uh, and go to get ideas. So one night I was, I said, Oh, check this out. And I started playing some multi-tracks and people freaked out. They loved it. So my assistant, Rhett Schull at the time, who got me onto YouTube, Rhett said, oh, my God, that was amazing. You've got all those multi-tracks? I said, yeah. He goes, you should do a show with that. With just, mm. you know, we were, we were yeah. having lunch. And I said, yeah, maybe I call it What Makes This Song Great. He said, oh, it sounds great. Then I just did the first episode that day and put it out. So. Wow. Wow. Rhett, Rhett came up with a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because that's a but, great resource. Because I bet you a lot of people ask you where you got those stems or where you got the. Oh my God, all yeah. the time. I, can I, I have I, them? I, <laughs> can I have them? Yeah. No, you know, um, I have. Uh, so I'm doing one on a lot. A lot of times now, I get them from the bands. Like I'm doing a, a, a video on XTC that I got from from the band this week. I've got my friend Tim coming over, who was the bass player, Tim Smith, bass player in Jellyfish, who's really a big big fan of XTC and. Um, and friends with the guys. And so Tim's going to do the episode with me. So that's awesome. Yeah. Super, super cool. Speak, you know, I did. You, um, you mentioned Brendan O'Brien, right? Yep. And um, so I know him. So you, I, I, I've seen, I've seen you mention him a lot. Um, I, did you know him from like your days in Atlanta or like back in? So I've met Brendan probably. Probably four times or so, and I mean, I've been living in Atlanta for 25 years. He he lives in California now. He's he moved probably about six years ago or so. But I mean, you rarely run into Brendan in town. Um, a couple of years in the mid 90s, he would play um, on Thanksgiving night at this place, Smith's Old Bar. Um, he'd do have a cover band that he played with, and um, 
he'd bring two Marshall half stacks up there with 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 plexis, and he would play so loud, and it was amazing. He's a phenomenal guitar player. Yeah, he's great. So, um, yeah, so I, you know, and then I met him a couple other times, but, you know, I'm a, a big fan of his production and I know Nick Didia, who is, who engineered all, all of his records and, uh, mm. um, but Brendan made, you know, really most of the best rock records of the nineties. Yeah. So. I mean, were you, were you around when, when, when he was working on any of those or? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I wasn't the, the, the studio that they, that he used to work at, which no longer exists, was called Southern tracks. And, um, and it was a one room studio. So you rarely got to go in there. I got to go in and work. I did one project there in, uh, maybe 2000, 2001. Um, and, um, but Brendan had, Oh God, 350 guitars there. And, and, uh, wow like all these amplifiers. I have an orange amp that I got that was Brendan's is back here. It's an orange overdrive, old, mm. old orange overdrive. And one time I was working at NRG in LA and Brendan was working with Stone Temple pilots. And, um, this is in probably 99. And so I, I think it was maybe no 98, something. I can't remember. It was, it was in the nineties. So I heard this guitar sound and I said, man, I wish my guitar sounded that good. And so they were taking a break and I peeked my head in and I saw this orange amp set up. It was an orange overdrives with, mm. with an orange, orange cabinet. So a couple of years ago on Reverb, I saw this amp and it had a road case under it and it said Brendan O'Brien. So I bought it. I well, was like, was oh selling, my God. He was selling a bunch of stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I yeah. saw that amp. I was like, I know that amp. I'm buying that. And it was, you know, it's a killer. I love those old, old orange, old orange amps. The I the worked, on, I worked on a orange uh, OD80 amp uh -huh. yep. uh, combo for Chris Novoselic. Okay. Oh uh, yeah. That what was... what about what about those amps, Dave? What do you think about those old old orange? The, the, the orange, the OD amps are cool. Yeah, they're definitely cool. The old ones are are uh, they got a thing about them. Yeah, I, re yeah. I really like those. They they they're they're so so rock. Yeah, is that what uh, Tony Iommi used, or what did he use with Black Sabbath? I know I, I saw he's all... a Laney a Laney clip. Uh, I know he did for a time. I think he did for a time. I I've, I've owned a couple of those. They have a built-in fuzz, and those are really great amps. Oh, okay, I thought I saw him using an orange at some point. I, he probably he probably used orange too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he saw him a little bit everywhere back in the '60s. <laughs> probably. Probably. So we were talking offline, um, and so we might as well just jump into it. Uh, you know, you're an amp, you're an amp guy. Um, you got a, a wall of amps. We, we're all amp guys. Dave clearly is an amp guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> so, uh, what are your thoughts on the digital modeling, profiling of amps? Especially because you produce amps, you do you know you, you know it's well present in the studio these days. Uh, what are your thoughts on the usage of it and its applications, or is there a, a application for it? And you don't have to hold back. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I I was telling you guys I've got fifteen four twelve cabs, and and uh, I probably bought five in the, this year. So that kind of tells you about my commitment. 
Now, I have to have somebody help me move them when I'm moving them. I can't move them by myself anymore unless I get a hand, my hand truck. But, you know, I know how to mic amplifiers. I have Neve mic breeze, and uh, I, you know, I can make any cabinet. If you have good sounding cabinets with good speakers, uh, I mean, how much better? No IR or no amp modeler is going to sound better than my real amp, period. It's just not. My amps are all in good repair. I've got great cabinets, old cabinets, whether it's, you know, my Marshall was 65 watt selections, not the reissues, the actual ones from the that they put in the JCM 800s in the late 70s, early 80s. And, uh, you know, I've got every type of speaker combination that you can think of and um i just think that they you know there's i have no need to use modelers now am i anti-modeler um i'm not anti-modeler um i understand why people use them they use them for convenience but that's why they invented roadies (laughs) um roadies are to help people move their big stacks and uh and i think and i always tell people you got to play, you got to move air. You can't move people if you don't move air. That's a great quote. So, you know, that's, and people used to be so into their sounds, whether it was Eric Johnson or David Gilmore or Jimmy Page. Everyone had their own original sound. Jimi Hendrix, Van Halen, they all had their combination of pedals they used, their guitars. Tone was everything to them. And, Everybody plays through, you know, now models of Dave's amps, you know, or uh, model, you know, like, I mean, honestly, this is that people play through the same amp models and they and they with the same cabinet things with the same delays on and everything. It's just like, come on, get your own sounds. People have been trying to copy Van Halen's sound from the first record forever. You know, they people try to copy. You know, I mean, these guys take a long time to get their sons. I worked with the singer for Fish, Trey, back in 2005 or so. He had a he had a guitar tech that came in every day before the session and spent two hours going through his entire rig, making sure there was not a buzz, not anything. And it, it's his his uh, you know, thing sounded immaculate. It really sounded great every day, consistent. You never hear a buzz, nothing. I mean, it was really. Uh, he played through a deluxe and uh, he had a, a, a tube screamer and um, and uh, he had a Les- he had a real Leslie. I mean, there's just no. Yeah, you can get fake Leslie's. I have a real Leslie. Why do I need a fake Leslie? You know, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you're it's convenience, like you said. Convenience. Yeah. It's convenience. I don't have to move. I don't have to move my stuff. So, you know. My, my my younger brother plays guitar. He plays in a huge cover band in upstate New York, Rochester, where, where we're from. And and uh, he'll go out and play some gigs in front of, you know, 8,000 people or so. And it's a 70s cover band. So he one time took his Helix out. He had a Helix foot pedal and he played it and everything. And then he's like, I said, what are you doing that for? He goes, well, we don't have much time. We, we can just do a line check. And I know that that's going to work. But then he does the gig and he calls me up and he's like, I'm not doing that anymore. It doesn't take that long. He uses a Mesa Mark V, um, and he does, says it doesn't take that long to set it up. And he used to use a Marshall. Uh, um, uh, what is what do you use? A JCM 800? No, JCM 2000 is what he used to use. But 
you know, as he's gotten older, it's heavier to carry the stuff, but mm-hmm. you know, they got people to help him. So I, I like the JCM too. Th- JCM. I do too. Yeah. I, it's not I, bad. I like that, that amp, you know, it yeah. was, um, it wasn't bad. It wasn't a bad amp. The 50 watt, the DSL one, uh, 50. That's what I had. Yeah. The DSL, not the TSL. <laughs> yeah. The right. DSL. I have, I have a DSL one that I got in 1999. I think it was one of the first years it came out. And those always sounded way better than the later ones, I thought. Yeah. Just like my, uh, I have a 2005 or so, uh, or maybe 2006 EVH, the the first first batch of the Fender ones, which yeah, I, I think sounded mm-hmm. sounded better than any of the other ones that they made. Yeah, the second channel. Uh, the, the second channel on that one was good. It wasn't too high gain. Yes. And it didn't go over the uh, later... <laughs> Well, you know, it's the guys. Well, get it's older. Three. <laughs> the guys get older, and then they want more. They they want more distortion, Eddie. You know, <laughs> just because they don't have the, the their hearing isn't as good. I mean, that's what it is. So they, for it to sound right, you have to have more gain because they need more harmonic information for them to make it sound right to their ears, which they're missing a lot of 4K. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, you, you end up. Uh, they, uh, every time that they put out a new version of the amp, they always have more and more, more and more and more gain. Yeah, yeah. Except for the it's EL- smaller, smaller, and smaller, and smaller, <laughs> and smaller, <laughs> and buzzier and buzzier. buzzier. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the. Uh, I've got the fifty watt. That the like the. It's That's like got the, too much gain too. The the fifty watt white one that I have. Channel, not the second channel, the other channel on it. Oh my god! Well, the red channel is ridiculous. Yes, the red channel. Yeah, you got to turn it on too. I never, I, right? I never use that channel. It's always on the blue channel. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I never use the red channel. It it, it actually squeals the red channel. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> That's not good. Well, it's like the fifty-one fifty, you know, combo that I have over there. That, you know, those things weren't made, meant to be played loud for some reason. It's just like. That could quite possibly be the heaviest combo ever made. Oh my god, yeah. That was just dumb. Yeah. Oh, what was it? A hundred pounds? It's almost a hundred pounds. Yeah. 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 When if you throw casters on it, it's like, it's got to be a hundred pounds. Man, yeah. Yeah, I remember weird. those things. Jesus, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I've got a. I have an old Fender Twin with JBLs in it that weighs Ooh. got away got away hundred pounds. It's it's impo- like I can't even lift it over the lip of the door. It's so heavy. Wow. Yeah. No, never, that... never left my studio. Well, nothing's really left my studio ever. So. So where do you where do you find all these cabs that you that you've acquired, like various places, local places, reverb. Yeah, local places, reverb. Yep. Reverb's dangerous. Yeah. Because yeah, you know the way they do the searches on there, it's like, oh, let's see what's the '70s effects. Okay. Oh, look at oh, look at that. <laughs> Click. You know, you know, I actually, I don't think I've bought a cabinet on reverb. It's all eBay. Most of the, most of the cabinets I bought are, um, are things that I've bought, um, uh, from friends of mine oh, okay. that, 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 in, that live in town here and stuff. Well, that's good. So, or, or friends that know other people. So it's, it's pretty much, I mean, I bought a, um, a silver Jubilee, uh, had in cab, I had a full stack. My friend Dave had the had the straight cab mint condition mm. that he's had forever. And then there was a, a woman selling a um, um, a half stack in town here, and I saw it on uh, 
on on eBay, and I was like, oh, it's too bad it's not in Atlanta. And I look, and it's like it's in Atlanta. <laughs> what are the chances? <laughs> so she brought it over with her dad, and uh, I don't know why she had it, but you know, she didn't. She got it from her ex husband or something, and I wow. played it. I was like, I'll take it. Sounds amazing. So I got a full Jubilee stack back there. An original Jubilee. Original Jubilee, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I I had the reissue. I liked it. Um, it was a good amp. I think, from what I heard, it sounds really close. Dave, you, you said it's similar. I haven't compared new to old, so I have no idea. I, 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 had, I, a, I, had, a, I had a reissue, and, I, and it, it didn't touch it. Oh, really? Not even close. Yeah. Okay. Well, I still I got rid of it. Once I got Dave's amp, I was like, yeah, I don't really need the Silver Jubilee. <laughs> At least that's how I felt. I was like, it's got everything that I want. So, um, but that's, uh, yeah, I, I, I love the amp, though. Um, so one of my favorite videos of Rick's mm. was the quantizing of John Bonham. Oh, yeah, that was great. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh my God! That's so ridiculous. Talk about right? sucking life out of everything. I know. <laughs> that was I always, unreal. I always wondered, you know, those are the videos where I'm like, I wonder if John Bonham were around today, he'd totally be beat detected. What would it sound like? So I was like, oh, I'll just make a video out of it, and then we'll see. And there were some people that said, oh, I think it sounds better. I'm like, I mean, only a couple people, but I'm like, really? Yeah, I think it but sounds better. Oh my God! <laughs> Only about two people Man. or so, but wow. I, I tell you, when I put out that video and and I was uh, I was coming back from New York or something, and some guy goes, "Oh my God, turn on Bill Burr's podcast. He's playing your video." I was like, "What?" So I turned on Bill Burr, and he was playing. Um, he played the video. He was talking about John. He did this long thing about quantizing what it is, and he says this guy did it. This guy, Rick, uh, did a video on what John Bonham's drums would sound like. So Bill Burr played my, my thing. It was back in May. He played played the, the video of it and uh, on, played the audio of it on his, uh, on his podcast because he's, he's a drummer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was fa- fascinated by it, too. And he was like, God, it sounds terrible. Yeah, sounds terrible. And then that yeah. sort of segues into the, the other videos about uh, – the other videos about everything to a click and everything uh, in time and all this and and how you rearranging other people's songs. Was it a hailstorm song or something? Yes, <laughs> hailstorm like and yeah. And well, uh, how computers ruined rock music. Yes, was a video. Yeah. Yes, and how I so agree. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's I, I I don't know what happened. <laughs> Dan, uh, bands bad. wanted to have their. Um, bands wanted to have their music quantized well first of all labels it used to be that a label would sign a band and then they get josh freeze to come in and and play drums and the drummer would usually quit and then they'd find another drummer that's usually how how all records were made it was i'm friends with josh and that's exactly how it happened (laughs) yeah and josh would just be you know sometimes the drummer would sit there with their head hanging down while josh is playing their parts to a click perfectly you know uh, and so produce, but then with Beat Detective, you were you were able to keep the crappy drummer, not have the band be all upset because they were childhood friends, and then fix all their drums. That's really why it happened. Hmm. 
And uh, then it just got to be the thing that labels didn't want to deal with having to pay session guys to come in and, and uh, they didn't want to break up the bands and they, it was just too much of a hassle. So they just made, you just have to work with what you had. So you're either editing a bunch of tastes together. Once you start editing, once you start moving stuff around in a drum that you gotta, you gotta almost fix everything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, if you listen to black dog, you can hear the clicks, John Bonham hits a crash and he starts clicking. So the Jimmy page can play all the, all the fills in between there. And then they would pop their finger off the console and you'd still hear the last stick click each time from mm-hmm. the counting that bottom would do. And that's the way you do. There's no click tracks to anything back then. Yeah. But then you were, you were comparing the, the tempos and songs, how they changed and, and how, uh, 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 you know, how it, the, the verse one was, it's, it was this tempo and verse, uh, you know, Verse two, yeah, was back in black, course. yeah, ninety-two, you know, ninety-two at the in the intro, ninety-three to ninety-four in the chorus, then ninety-three in the second verse, then ninety-four to ninety-five in the second chorus, and that's why the songs had energy because they had ebb and flow to them. Yes, breathes. It's a beautiful thing. A great band playing as a band is what we love. Yeah, I mean, and that's you, what you, you used to hear. You never hear things like that anymore. It's um, I talked to Nick Dedia about that actually, Brent, who who worked with Brendan on all those records, and he said that, I mean, he and Brendan resisted going to Pro Tools until about 2004, which was very late for people to do that. Mm. They would edit, they would actually cut the tape and do do a similar thing, but they would, um, you know, if if somebody was was dragging or whatever, they'd cut out. Let's cut out an inch here, and that's that's how people would do it back in the day. They would, they would quantize in that way, but I mean, it was never exact. It wasn't on a grid or anything. It was people playing, not playing to a click, and then maybe them removing a little bit here and there to, to make it have a little better feel or something. But it, but you know, it usually wasn't uh, the drummer. If 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 any, maybe it would be the guitar player, or, right? Or would they have the drummer do that? No, no. So they would do like um. I, I did a thing where Randy Staub mixed a record for me way back, and I asked him about the Metallica Black record, and I said, how many reels of tape would it take for a drum track? And he said, I think he said 16 reels of tape per drum track. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what's funny? I'm, I'm going to have... Um, I'm going to have... Uh, well, we're going to have uh, Bob Rock on the show. Okay, well, there you go. Ask him. And, and I, I, we're definitely going to ask about that one. <laughs> I'm definitely going to ask about that one because I remember I was a kid. I remember when that record was being recorded um, one-on-one studios uh, in North Hollywood. And I do believe I remember because I worked for Andy Brower's studio rentals at the time Uh when I was 18 years old. And I think I do believe uh, I delivered stuff to that session. Pretty positive, actually. I love that Bob got got Lars to play a lot of caveman fills caveman do 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 it always sounds so heavy and <laughs> and it was uh uh I, I that was i i thought his influence with the band was was uh was incredible but you know when they do the like the making of the black album it's amazing how together the songs were before they recorded them because james is, was would be playing and singing the songs out in the in the live room when they're tracking them and just killing them 
mean, he really, they really had the arrangements together on these songs. Yeah, yeah they were great. That's another lost art. <laughs> yeah. Pre-production. Yeah. Do you think it's done in, in country music, or is that still that that's it's even bled over there? No, so country music nowadays is uh, most of it, except for Dave Cobb, uh, who's uh, an old, old friend of mine from Atlanta. Most country records are now done by producers where they play everything. It's pretty much done like the um, like all the pop records. It's Max Martinized. You have all these young guys that have moved to Nashville that um, that that do, do that are track people. That means that they play everything. Occasionally, they'll bring in a banjo player or something to make it sound kind of like country or pedal steel player, but it's all pop music basically with with a you know southern with a with a twang and uh, but it's all they call it pitched and pocketed, meaning auto tuned and beat detected. <laughs> if it's re- if it's real drums, but they call it pitch and pocketing. Nice. I've done a lot of sessions in Nashville, so wow. So is is the the whole la scene dead from a music perspective dave you could probably answer that too but oh god uh i don't go out a lot but generally speaking i think so <laughs> <laughs> uh, i mean i think there, there is some resurgence in some bands and things over in kind of glass Elp, glasgow park and and echo park and a little more indie based stuff that's a little cooler i think but again you know i'm old i don't go out that much so um i wouldn't as far as i know there's no scene that i know of really going on here at all i mean not at all it's mostly like tribute bands a lot of tribute bands that's the other thing (laughs) yeah tribute bands tribute bands bands. As, as, as your heroes die, the reason tribute bands are so popular is because no one makes music that's <laughs> like right. the old bands anymore. So, I, I mean, so, you know, I, I, I often talk about this with people. And um, when you think of, oh, I don't know, let's let's hypothetically say the Eagles or something. And, and you and you look at their catalog and, you know, they're listen, you know, their songs, Hotel California or this or that or whatever. Um you know every part of that song in your head. Mm-hmm. You know every guitar riff. You know every, uh, I say, I call it all hooks. Everything is a hook. The vocal lines are hooks. The guitar parts are hooks. It's a memorable riff at the beginning or, or, or drum part. or You literally know it inside out and backwards and forwards. And you know what? And not necessarily because I was the huge Eagles fan. You just know it. It was on radio. You heard it 10 million times, but it was such a well-crafted song or a who song or, uh, you know, you just know it in your head. I mean, I can sit here and think of a who song and just know the, know it all, you know, it just, right, or, or clearly the Beatles it does, come, comes to mind with me. It's so rare. You know, I say a good song is one that you can remember. Yeah. That, you know, that 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 sticks in your head. Now, whether this is a genre of music you like or hate or or, or oh, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. A good song is one you can remember and fast, meaning you hear it once and you're humming it down the road, whether you hate it or not. You're humming it, you know, or, or it's stuck in your head. And that, that's a great song. Um, 
sense, doesn't it? I remember seeing a, a reading an interview with John Lennon one time. Or is it Lennon and McCartney? And they said, how come you don't write your lyrics down? You never see the lyric sheets of those guys. And I said, listen, mm-hmm. if we can't remember them, if we have to write them down, who, nobody's going to be able to remember them. Yeah. They're, you know, they're not memorable. If we have to write them down, they're not, they're not memorable. You know, yeah, that's that. Oh my God. Touching on this. You just brought me back to when I was gigging with my band and we were a trip, not a tribute band, but we were a cover band. And this was a few years ago. Uh, I haven't done it in several years. And, um, but we couldn't find a singer who could actually know the lyrics. It was like <laughs> in practice with the phone, the iPad, like, and I, I even brought it up one day and just said, you know, some of these guys were completely strung out on drugs and they still knew the fucking lyrics. Like, <laughs> come Before on. Yes. Before teleprompter. No right? teleprompter's exactly. nothing. I mean, come on. You know, like, you know, I don't have sheet music up in front of me. You know, I mean, if anything, I might have written down like a couple chord changes on my hand or something you know but yeah i don't get it but um so rick i i I heard from somewhere that you were involved in um shinedown you did some work with shinedown yeah i worked on on some of their first record i co-wrote some songs and um um i co-wrote three or four songs in the first record and produced them and when was that 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 was uh that was like two 2003 maybe something like that there's it was really just brent uh the singer um i i got asked by their a and r guy if i would go and write with the singer that he had signed and um i said sure where where's where where does he live he says he lives uh at ronnie van zandt's wife's house i said okay down in jacksonville so i drive down to jacksonville bring my acoustic guitar and get there and she's got like a guest house and brent was there and he had about five grocery bags with his clothes in it and that was it and just a mattress on the floor and he was crashing there and and his the guitar player he was playing with at the time was married to her uh daughter and they had a kid together randy van zantz would have been his granddaughter Mm. so i i got met brent and i wrote um i wrote a song with them uh, called Lost in the Crowd. That was the first song. We recorded on a boombox, and, and I played it over the phone because you didn't really send MP3s, and it was a cassette. Played it over the phone to the A&R guy, and he's like, this sounds amazing. Why don't you keep, keep going? And then um, wrote a few more songs, and then we went in the studio and recorded them, and record did uh, did pretty well. Did a million, almost two million copies, and... And uh, I, wrote, I wrote with Brent then um, one more time. I wrote about nine more songs with them before the third record. They cut a few of them, but they were B-sides. Some of the songs got cut, got taken off the record. I was the first person I wrote with them. And back then, uh, it would be whoever the last people that wrote with it with Brent, those would always be the songs that would make the record. So. Nice. That's just, you know. What are you going to do? Right. Even though I thought that some of my songs were, were far better. <laughs> the way things work. Unfortunately. <laughs> um, so how, when, when you guys were recording and, uh, and you were working with them, did, uh, was that all done live and traditional or. You know? Yeah. So I had demos that I, 
did with Brent, because uh, I would always do demos. Any of my songwriting sessions, I would do demos, and I'd play all the parts on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll program a drum part or something, and and um, and then we we would end up just replacing the drums or something a lot of times, and and uh, I would it'd be all my parts on there. I hope the guys don't mind me saying that, but <laughs> what, whatever. It was so long ago at this point. <laughs> well, that's cool. It's a great album. That's good stuff. Um, yeah, so it was it was it was fun. I mean, Brent's one of the he's just an absolutely amazing singer and could sing anything and and it was a great melody writer too. Uh, really good improviser. So um, yeah, it was. I, I always forget that I worked on that record, even though I have a platinum record sitting on the wall over there. It's the only time I remember is when I walked by. I was like, oh yeah, I worked on that record. Well, you should do a video on that one. I've never even, it, honestly, it never even, I never even think about that. See, I, I told you I was going to ask you some things that I... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I never do any rec. I never do any videos. I've never done any videos really on any records I've worked on. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, maybe. I don't... Uh, if you run out of ideas. I don't <laughs> it, it just feel, it feels weird, I don't, you know, to do that. Um... I'd much rather talk about other people's music or teach people things. And uh, it just seems weird for me to to talk talk about things I worked on. I don't know. I don't know why, but I'd much rather talk about, you know, you know, a classic song or or some Instagram guitar player that I like or whatever, you know, or other Mm -hmm. other things other than myself. Right. 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 So, um, I also heard that you, uh, I think you mentioned this, that you had worked with Marty Friedman, right? I did. So my, I was in a band back in the late nineties that was signed to universal, um, or actually London sire. We got dropped by universal, but, um, we went on tour with Megadeth for five weeks and the second day of the tour, the, uh, his guitar tech came by and I was practicing backstage and I was playing jazz. So, uh, Guitar tech says, oh, my God, I got to tell Marty about you. So about five minutes later, Marty comes by and he's like, are you the jazz guy? <laughs> and I said, uh, I guess he goes, come on on our bus. I want to I want to pick your brain. And I was like, OK. So he um, so I, I actually played with Marty every day for five weeks. And we've been friends since then. Keep in touch all the time. And. That's cool. And uh, I, I, you know, I have some recordings that I that I did on cassette with Marty, me and Marty playing together. But I cannot find the cassette. I have so many hundreds of cassettes. Um, I can't, I can't find them. But, but I love Marty's playing. He's just amazing. Oh, he is incredibly unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and his stuff with Megadeth was really cool. Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, um, and just I missed him. I was, I wasn't. Oh, I got I somehow got conflicted, but at Nam he had a show at the same time I think as somebody else. I miss I missed his show, but but speaking of jazz, um, one of my friends uh, Pete Testa asked. He said, "Why is it jazz players rarely, if ever, bend notes? Because they play with really heavy strings." <laughs> <laughs> okay, and they That's can't. A very simple and, explanation. And they is. can't and they can't bend them. Okay, that makes sense. If they can, it's only a half step usually. So you'll hear you'll hear jazz players half step bends. Right, right. 
But there's, you know, but there are people that I consider jazz players like Larry Carlton, who can bend, who's one of the best, you know, benders <laughs> you'll ever hear, you know, um, and his, he's a rock player, but his vocabulary is very much like a jazz player. Same with, same with, uh, Robin Ford is, is a blues player, but with a lot of jazz influence and these guys are, you know, mm-hmm. are, are some of the best, you know, can bend strings as well as anybody. Yeah, Robin Ford. Geniuses. He's amazing, Robin Ford. Yeah. Really, really good. So what do you prefer playing? What do you what what's like is it jazz? Is it rock? Everything. Yeah. <laughs> he loves it all. I like it all. It's uh um uh I just did a video last week, the twenty greatest rock guitar solos of all time. And uh and it was fun because in one day I had to play 20 different guitar solos that I hadn't practiced ever really, or not since the seven, you know, people are like, when did you learn all these? And I said, in the seventies. <laughs> and, uh, cause most of, I realized almost everyone that I did was from between 1968, and 1981. Cause I had like the, the, the latest one was Neil Schoen was a uh, stone in love, mm. but I had, uh, I had everything from kid Charlemagne, Larry Carlton to, uh, comfortably numb to, to, um, Bohemian Rhapsody on the ones like the, the, the blockers, people that you can't, can't play along with the tracks, uh, like comfortably numb. I had to create a whole track, all the backing parts and everything. Same thing with the queen. Mm Um, uh, and even when you do that, they can't block that. They they can't, no, they don't block it. ACDC. I did back in black. I had to create all the parts for that. Um, yeah, it's a pain. I mean, you have to actually, play the drums, mm-hmm. play the bass, play the guitars. I had my ACDC. I did a video on them that I had taken down because my, my um, version was too close. My, the guitar solo was too close to the original. So I had to go back, take the video got blocked. I had to take, take it down and I had to play different inversions on, on the, uh, behind the solo and make them a little bit sloppier so that it would get through the, the, the filter. You so. think it's a filter, or you think it's a person actually going? No, it's a, it's a, it's all done by bots for the most part. I mean, some of it's done manually, the takedowns, but uh, it's ridiculous. But it is ridiculous. I mean, I was gonna do, I'm gonna do one where I do top twenty, you know, '80s metal solos, and and uh, you know, um, I, I I tend to do when I do my greatest ones, I tend to to lean towards the people that kind of invented the genre. And not not to try and go too far into the into the eighties where there were a lot of my favorite players too that that, that play, like Marty in the eighties and mm-hmm. uh, but really rock guitar was invented you know starting in the the real rock, that I think of rock guitar in the in the late sixties yeah around nineteen sixty eight ish yeah I mean that's you know <laughs> Led Zeppelin <laughs> Led Zeppelin, Zeppelin. Jimi Hendrix mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. Uh, and and it really, uh, uh, be, I mean, between then and '81, you had every everything happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Paul Kossoff. Amazing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the variance of tones and things like that was just uh, just unbelievable. Everybody had different sounds. Everybody had um, had different setups. Different used different pedals. Um, when I interviewed Peter Frampton, I remember him telling me that he, he's four, five years younger than Eric Clapton. I just saw them play at Crossroads and Clapton 
came to sit in playing while my guitar gently weeps with Peter Frampton and Peter announced that they had never played together ever. Now Peter's 69 and Eric is 74. Wow. And when I interviewed Peter, uh, it was probably about eight months ago or so I asked him about, about his style. And he said that, well, everybody at the time was so enamored, including himself with Eric Clapton's playing, but he knew he didn't want to be a copy of Clapton because everybody was copying him. So he, um, really his, his dad was into, uh, turned him on to jazz and he was into Kenny Burrell and West Montgomery and people like that. So he incorporated more modal scales and things like that. The jazz players used into his, along with the blues into his playing and it made him have such an original, original style. Um, but, uh, he was really, uh, humbled with playing with Eric a couple weeks ago, it was it was incredible to watch. Yeah, them play awesome. together. Yeah, I I feel like like Clapton is winding down, you know. But he just did the Crossroads special special again. Did you go to that? I thought. Yeah. I, for some reason, I thought yeah. you did. Yeah. How was that? Yeah, I did. It was great. Did he play a lot? Great. He played. He played. Uh, he played both nights. He played an acoustic set the first night. Played an electric set the second night, and he sounded incredibly really? good. Oh okay, my god! Good. All right. All right, good because I I saw him down here and it was such an uninspiring show. Like he he barely said two words to the crowd. He just kind of sat. It was very. It was a couple of tours ago uh, when mm-hmm. he was playing uh, somewhere over the rainbow at the end of the show. Um, and I really left feeling like, oh God, you know, like is is he getting too old to, to play? You know, but I'm glad to hear it because I love the Crossroads stuff. I mean, it's, you know, you think about these guys, they played in the 60s. It's, it's you know, 50 years ago. That's, uh, I mean, just to live 50 years is a long time, let alone to, to have been an adult and playing, you know, I mean, in your 20s and right. creating these records. And I mean, these records must seem like they, they must have such a disconnect between when they listen to the records and they, I wonder if they think, did I really do that? Did I actually play Layla? Did I actually sing that? You know, I mean, yeah, of course they played <laughs> oh, wow, these things yeah. live, but you know, um, you never know what, what kind of, uh, if they're on any type of drugs or whatever, and they don't even remember the sessions or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. uh-huh. I, I had a, I did a thing on, uh, what makes a song great on roundabout and John Anderson wrote to me and he loved the video and, oh, and wow. said that, that he, you know, none of these guys hear the multi-track since way back then. And, you know, I go and look on videos of, and, and even in the, in the seventies, Steve Howe was playing the guitar parts differently than on the record because he didn't have any reference. He probably forgot what he played and then just kind of made up something that was close to it. So, um, which is, which is interesting. You know, Frampton told me that, that, uh, when they, I said, why did you do lines on my face on the on the record, the recorded version? It's an acoustic guitar song with nothing like the the song that is on the live record. He said, well, we had an acoustic version and we had an electric version. I always made the electric versions completely different. I said, because I was like, they sound nothing alike. He said, yeah, it had a completely different guitar arrangement to all the songs that I did acoustically. And it's fascinating, you know, that it was seventy. I mean, it was just so so fresh back then that people people would do that stuff original very you know yeah it's it, it's sad that the music today isn't like that 
you know. Well, you know, I have another theory about that too. So music today, and and you know, I could be way off base here, but you know, we talk about all these classic songs and the the fantastic, crazy lyrics for some of these songs. Like you listen to uh, you you look at the lyrics for Rolling Stones songs and stuff, and and they're masterpieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and talking about subjects and and just just real masterpieces and and you know i think you know today you're bombarded with so much information um with the web and 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 social media and 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 you pretty much know a little bit about everything just from being connected to our modern day uh you know computers and this and that and uh, but I often think that some of the creativity is lost now, um, in, you, you know, you even think about it. So someone wants to write a topic and they're uh, a song in the seventies or sixties. Uh, and it's about, uh, who knows, it's about traveling to somewhere so whatever, Thailand or something, you know, who knows something gets in their head and they have this sort of fantasy that this song comes out of, you know? The trouble is now you just know, right? You know what it's like. You know what it is. I think you lose. I think I think it's kind of numbed your mind, and you lose some of your creativity um, that uh, you know that didn't happen then because it didn't exist. You know, mm-hmm. you couldn't be reached at every waking moment uh, of the day. You know, you know, you you didn't have an answering machine. <laughs> <laughs> you had to be home to answer the phone. Right. Uh, at that point in time, I mean, you're going far enough back. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I, I always use when talking about this exact subject of lyrics, Dave, I always bring up the Rolling Stones. That's always my point of reference. Oh, those lyrics are amazing. <laughs> I, I say you could, I always tell people Angie is my favorite song of all time. But I mean, there's so many Stone songs that are my favorite songs. But but um my I, I have a theory that when I was growing up, when, when I was five years old, I went trick-or-treating with my friends that were five years old. And we didn't have parents that went with us. Yeah. And, and, and you had experiences when you were kids. No one – you'd get arrested if you let your kids go out, even if their kids are 10 years old, if they went out on their own. Back then, kids growing up had all these experiences on their own, by themselves, with their friends – and they were way more mature, I think. And and you know, we're all helicopter. I'm a helicopter parent. You know, I mean, I'm don't I don't want my kids going out and doing things. But it limits their experiences, and um, and they can't write with the same perspectives that that people had back then. That they would that weren't connected to the entire world, like you're saying, Dave. Too. Mm-hmm. You know, they there's yeah. no you know they can see what everything's like. There's no daydreaming involved as to right. you know or, or personal experience involved i mean i used to get on a bus and go into the city of rochester by myself and my parents never said anything mm-hmm. I, I mean you think about it now it's like it's insane right well but, think about back yeah. then people used to go to concerts rock concerts by themselves you know without their parents now it's parents take have to take them to the rock concert. that's right or it's not there isn't even a rock concert they have to take them to the pop concert or the right. rap or the rap concert yeah but speaking of lyrics, you know, today I was listening to uh, Leonard Skinner and uh, the bat, uh, the ballad of Curtis Lowe. 
Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You know, it's all, oh, I just, that, that song gets me every time. It's just like, you know, it tells the story and all about, you know, this. he's paying him, you know, money so he can play on his dobro, you know, like just, just this, who's thinking this stuff, you know, like that's, that's creativity, know. you know, and yeah, it's just, it's not, but it, you know, I, I have a good, uh, actually a good question kind of fits in from um, a good friend of mine, Ron Zussman. He loves your channel, not a musician. So that's, that's a really cool. I love it way to when you know you know you're doing something really broad because you're not even appealing to the you know the you're appealing a broader audience you know someone who's not even a he just loves music and you know so that's a really cool thing he uh, he said is there anything you like about today's rap music musically creatively lyrically etc um you know i like some it's it's interesting i you know i live in atlanta and i see the uh i've i've been um, kind of, I wouldn't say involved in the rap scene, but I know, knew a lot of the rappers that came around in, you know, like little John and people in the late nineties, early two thousands. It's a very small community here. And, and, and I knew pretty much all the rappers from here and, uh, and saw a lot of the stuff being created at the time. And they're incredibly creative people that we're doing it. And, and there's a lot of really interesting sounds and, um, and really interesting, uh, creative lyric writing that goes on in rap music. And, uh, um, so, you know, I, I think it's probably from me living here that I've been exposed to it so much, especially me being, I'm 57 years old. I wouldn't, I'm not your typical, person that that would be exposed to the hip-hop scene but i mean that is the one of the predominant it's funny because atlanta was a huge place for for hip-hop and rap and also you had brendan o'brien and matt serletic that were both from atlanta that were both doing records all the time here and i was here and dave cobb who did uh, does all the big country you know sturgill simpson and jason isbell and all those records dave cobb lived here he was in a band i produced and i used to work at his studio all the time so we had all this rock people here that were producers and, and, and making music, my friend, Butch Walker. And, and, uh, and then there was this big hip hop and rap scene. So this is, this was really an unusual place to, uh, uh, very, very cool. Yeah. Very eclectic. Yeah. I mean, very, very eclectic. Lots of different genres. A lot, a lot of, a lot of crossovers and people are really supportive here musically. You know, you'd used to back then you'd see people out of gigs all the time. It didn't matter what what kind of music they were into we'd go out and see all different types of music right so yeah, yeah for me you know I, I i actually loved the old school rap music you know when it first came out you know sugar hill gang you know i don't know dave did you, did you ever listen to any rap music at all any any hip-hop or any of that stuff growing up no no <laughs> i love it not one not i love one. it yeah not one Lots of other things, but not not that. Now, did you uh, did you ever listen to Chili Peppers and like how? Yeah. When, so it kind of bled bled over into there, like Mister yeah. Mister Bungle or you know like yeah, all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but but okay. yeah, no, I didn't really. Um, I still don't really necessarily appreciate a lot of rap, but I do like. Uh, well, from my hometown, Eminem, I still think mm. he's one of the best that ever existed. Mm. 
there might be a few other things that are, that that is that's okay for me, you know. I love the but, Beastie Boys. I mean, yeah, okay, yeah, but that was a little. It's not really. Well, that's rock. That's kind of rock. So you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, but but then Run DMC. You see, Run DMC before them did some of that rap, you know, rock rap stuff. Yeah, you know, I was just at a festival in in Louisville, um, and uh, Ice Cube was on. Oh, yeah. uh, one of the stages and you know i gotta say he killed it uh, i mean like that was pretty ballsy which i appreciated like it was it was like it was like not rock but it had balls well you know, you know if if it wasn't for run dmc aerosmith never would have had their comeback in the 80s true. absolutely that, that resuscitated their career and that was rick rubin's first hit was that and Andy Wallace, who mixed a lot of my favorite rock records in the in the you know starting with well he worked with Slayer in the eighties but he did Nevermind and then he mm-hmm. mixed the first two Rage Against Machine records he mixed Helmet he mixed uh, mm. Jeff Buckley and he did you know Lincoln Park and and uh, System of a Down all yep. these all these different all these great rec- rock records uh, Andy uh, Wallace Andy did Wallace is great. Andy Wallace is a genius and I wish I could interview Andy Wallace. I don't know any, you know, uh, that'd be he's, great. He's uh that's one person that I've not interviewed two people. I want to interview on my channel that I haven't three people, Brendan O'Brien, Andy Wallace and Pat Metheny. So there's, there's three, uh, three musicians that if I could interview, I would interview. That's actually a good question. Well, that would, so, Brendan shouldn't be that hard. I, I, I don't know anyone that knows that talks to Brendan. So, well, if anybody, if anybody knows get, Brendan I, that's I, I watching this, that. <laughs> there you go. But I'd love to interview Brendan. I'm a massively big fan, and uh, he would get a, a great interview on my channel. Yeah, so. that's cool. Well, I'll let you know. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd say my. Top. I worked. I, I worked with Brendan on an Offspring record. That oh, cool. he did a conspiracy one record. I got a platinum record for that on my wall. Nice. So, uh, and uh, and that kind of leads into something else that, that um, we touched on before we started this. Uh, we're talking about anything with programming, and you're sort of out. You know, uh, if it takes too much time, uh, this was along the lines of Kemper's and Axefexes and things like that. If it takes more than a, a minute. <laughs> I'm done. I'm with you. Uh, I mean, I'm okay with, you know, like an effects pedal or something, programming delays or things like that or something mm-hmm. like that. But but if it takes more than a minute to change your tone, I, uh, no. So the funny thing is, recently, because I've worked with the Offspring for years, uh, recently, uh, I mean, as in a week ago or so, <laughs> weeks ago. Okay. I went to a production rehearsal they were having because they wanted to work on their guitar sounds a little bit. And they hadn't done that or had even a production rehearsal in years since maybe I built the rigs. And these are rigs that revolve around an Axe Effects. They used to have two rigs and amps and everything, but this revolves around an Axe Effects. So um, I'm there with Bob Rock. (laughs) The two of us are tweaking the rigs together, <laughs> which is an interesting thing in general. Uh, and uh, but he's really looking at the editor and just kind of scratching his head on how, 
I at least I'm a little more familiar with it and can get around on it a little bit more. Um, and you know, but what literally like you're just trying to use the mouse and, and make the knob turn on, on the screen, which is the easiest way to edit the thing. So it's a lot easier than sitting there put, pushing buttons on the front. But even that is like you'd miss the knob and then you'd go too far and then you're just like, because you, you were doing it on laptops so you're doing it on pads instead of like a real mouse. And, and so it was like, I can't believe it's taking this long to just dial this sound in. I mean, wow. we're just sitting there laughing at each other. It's like if it was an amp, it would be done in literally 10 seconds. Right. A, a little more trouble. Okay, a little more presence. Okay, okay it's done. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 information and i'm overload. like is this really all worth it it's not i, I mean i i think no like, i agree yeah i don't think it's worth it uh, i think you know if anything the one thing i do like about the kemper is like i can just go in and just kind of turn a couple knobs when i want to just mess with it just for fun i can turn a couple knobs and get a good tone and that's that's it you know i, I know some people are like oh my god like it's got to go into these editor things and mess you know it's just the signal chain and all of these things you got to mess with it's crazy um so tell us more about that session dave i'm curious about which the, the session the conspiracy one session no no the working with offspring recently oh oh just now just yeah, two yeah. weeks ago so i mean yeah so i mean well we basically literally bob and i went through each of the guitar rigs and they're, they're backup rigs also, so they have the B rigs there also. So we went through each of the guitar rigs and dialed in a better guitar tone than what they had been using. Because um, it hadn't been touched since I did it, and that was like seven years ago. Wow. And it had they had changed some stuff over the years, so it was really out of whack to what originally was done. Uh, so... Um, so what was originally done was gone. Because I originally had actually done this by ear to, against their original tube amp rigs at the time. Dialed it in so it would be mimic as close as humanly possible to that rig. And they're still using live cabinets with it, so like real guitar cabinets. So at least it's a little bit of a, a better thing than just say, you know, in-ears or all direct. Um, so we just went through everything, including the bass rig. It's just everything. Backup guitar player, two so three three guitar players and the bass player and but Bob was even there listening to the drums and stuff too, so just dialing it in, you know, just getting it getting it to sound good. So is he going to produce yeah. them? Is that what he's 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 been producing them for a bunch of records? Oh really? Okay. Yeah, I mean he's done two or two or three records with them already. I didn't know that. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, we have to get him on the show. That we'll, we're working on that. But getting well, he back... said yes. So, awesome. <laughs> so he's coming on the show. I mean, I just gotta get with him now and try to schedule something. That's perfect. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So, so uh, Pat Matheny is another one of yours, right, Rick? Yeah, I've uh, I've been I've, I've I saw Pat play in the '70s and uh, was always a big fan of his. Um, and I actually interviewed the, his drummer, Antonio Sanchez, last week in New York. I had him on my show. And Antonio played with him for about 15 years. But Antonio also did the soundtrack to Birdman, which has an amazing drum soundtrack. 
Uh, he's one of the best jazz drummers in the world. And, um, but I've written to Pat, oh God, five or six times, never got a response. I have his email and wrote his manager, publicist, nothing. He hates, he, he hates YouTube. Yeah. He absolutely hates YouTube. He has every video taken down before like 1992 or so, or 1982, something like that. Everything, everything after 82 to the present he has taken down. Wow. So, wow. I mean, he's really anti-YouTube. That's too bad. That's too bad. But, you know, if you go on YouTube, uh, you know, Brendan O'Brien, there's one interview with Brendan O'Brien. One. And um, and there's no pictures of Brendan, almost no pictures of Brendan on the Internet. Nothing. There's nothing. It's like these guys don't exist. Andy Wallace, there's a couple interviews. Or, you know, one interview you did with, with, um, with uh, Mix Magazine online only and then uh he did mix with the masters and he has an interview out with that which is which is interesting but it's not really in depth he's, he's there's really no interview of him being asked questions mm-hmm. by someone that that actually is familiar with his work and yeah. um that's why i want to interview these guys because i know their work mm-hmm. and i want to really ask them specific things they were there at these sessions you know mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean that's one of the reasons why I want to have um, oh, what oh, I'm totally drawing drawing a blank on his name. He's in Bon Jovi right now. Dave, you know him, not Phil. What's the other? Uh, John Shanks. John Shanks. John Shanks. Yeah, because yes. he because he worked Love on John. yeah he worked on the Van Halen album, A Different Kind of Truth. Ah uh, yes. And it and it seems like he's been like gagged to not ever talk about that. Uh, because there's like one interview where he has like a, and I, I would love to have him on and talk about that somehow. He, pro- he probably can't talk about it. That's yeah. I, I can say one thing. Oh, he did say he needed a lot of therapy after. <laughs> that's that's the quote. That's the quote that he said, basically. <laughs> so, I mean, and that, that, that opens up for so many questions. <laughs> why? <laughs> you know, like, tell us why. Oh. Uh, I'm sure I know why. I know but... so. i know some yeah another interesting thing was a funny story um well maybe i shouldn't talk about that speaking of randy staub randy staub was gonna mix that record oh really mix the van halen record randy started mixing that record okay and he didn't finish he left Mm. on his own doing was it uh who, who, I'm trying to think who mixed the record. Um, Ross Hogarth and yeah. yeah, Ross did. That's yeah. right. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe that story's for another time. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, yeah. That's uh, well. Which... Rand, Rand, Randy's a good. Uh, I mean, he, Randy's mixed some incredibly great records. One of one of my favorite records he mixed was um, the Black Gives Way to Blue. Um, that's a chains record. That's probably one of the best guitar sounding records I've ever heard. Yep. Probably one of the best sounding records. Yeah, one of the best sounding records. A lot of years. Yes. At least in a lot of years. Yeah, which album years. is this? I mean, Black Gives Way to Blue was the first one with the new singer, William Defoe, and it has and Nick Grasky Lennon's produced it. Randy Staub mixed it, and it sounds phenomenal. Mm. Oh my god. The guitar tones, crushing. the bass tones, the drum tones, crushing. And and Right from the first track on, it just 
I mean, they just had so many, they, they'd layer these guitar sounds and everyone would be so perfectly recorded and, and, and speak. And the drums were monstrous and the bass had huge low end. And it's just, Oh my God, it's a freaking masterpiece. Whenever I want to listen to a new set of studio monitors or something, I put on looking in view on that record, which is yes. crushing. Oh. And, I can tell right away if something sounds right out of my speakers if I just put that record on. Wow. And the 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 funny thing is how I work with Jerry and I do all his rigs and stuff and obviously he has a signature amp with us and things like that. So I did his rig also back uh, for the Bones record back okay. in the early 90s. So okay. I, did, uh, I did his guitar rack back then. Um, then I didn't then no contact for a million years. Then uh, a sound guy friend of mine was working with Alice again. Uh, this is right, uh, just beginning for this Black Gives Way to Blue kind of thing. And Tom Abraham, uh, he he called me and goes, "Yeah, you know, I'm working with Alice right now, and you know, Jerry needs some help with his guitar rig. You know, he wants to, you know, he needs he needs some help again." I go, "Yeah, I did it a long time ago. I know exactly what you know." kind of thing he looks for and this and that so anyway i wind up doing his guitar rig and this and and such and i remember sitting in his cadillac escalade at the time this album's not out yet and him playing the final you know mastered version of it in his cadillac escalade i just remember sitting there and listening to the drums and the snare and everything and i'm like oh my god oh my god this sounds great and he had loud in the car and i'm like going holy crap it sounds good yeah i mean it's it it is it is one of the greatest sounding rock records ever and i wish more people knew the record i mean the the single did well um the, the the first single they put out um check my brain check my brain yeah that did really well but uh, but the album tracks on it are just phenomenal i agree Man. well you know what i'll be downloading the second and then get, <laughs> oh mark yeah mark if you don't have that record it's crushing it's unbelievable okay, yeah. i'll be getting it uh and uh then the second record randy mixed also after that which was the dinosaur one something gives way to dinosaur which had some great songs on it too yeah and it sounds similar not quite as good, but very similar. Um, not quite as crushing, but you can tell it's Randy that mixed it. Uh, hands down, you can tell Randy mixed it. Yeah. And then the funny thing is their new record, Randy didn't mix. Rainier Fog or whatever is the new record, and that's Joe Barisi. Mixed. Joe Barisi did, yeah, that's right. Strikingly different sound. Yes, totally different. Uh, for me personally, nothing against Joe. Joe's great. Uh, for me personally, I much prefer Randy Stop for their sound. Um, but uh, but there's some cool songs on the record too. Yeah, I think that 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 first record though the the best heavy guitar sounds hands down. I mean, just I can't if I had to say if think of another I can't think of another record where the guitar sounds are that amazingly good. Just mm. just beautifully recorded and mm. just incredible sounds. Wow. tones oh my god yeah hear it. i agree because some some of my favorite guitar tones are van halen related guitar tones 
Um, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, what are yours, Dave? What do you? I mean, clearly this is one of them. Uh, oh man, favorite guitar tones recorded. Hmm. There's so many though. Um. I mean, of course, Van Halen is is you know one, but I, I I'll get it down to specifics. Van Halen two, mm. not Van Halen one, not anything else. Van Halen two specifically. I mean, there were some other good ones, of course, in there, but Van Halen two specifically, it just sounds like the amp is going to blow the cabinet up, mm. and I love <laughs> I love the overtones of that, and it's just just, and that thing was just chock full of great so- songs. Um, you know, other players of so my area. I grew up in the '80s, so you know. So, for me, you know, all those great guitar guys who all had their own sounds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you had your Eddie Van Halen, you had your Warren D. Martini from Rat, mm-hmm. who had a fantastic guitar tone. You had um, King's X. Love yeah, X. yeah. So the record unique, that Brendan unique. did, uh, Dog Dog Man, is one of the best sounding records. Brendan did that, and the guitar tones, the drum tones, everything are phenomenal. Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Ty Tabor's guitar sound on that record is so good. God. That's a good one. I also like the Gretchen yeah. record. Gretchen record's amazing. Love, love that. That's when I yes. first introduced to them, really. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, 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 one, at least one record from Dokken, George Lynch did, mm-hmm. at least one of them, and that's the... Um, Tooth and Nail for me. No, not not for the guitar tone. I think oh. whatever has Unchained the Night on it or whatever, that that mm. has a just a fat, juicy, great, martially kind of uh, just uh, great, unique tone. Uh, but you're right. They all had unique tones, different, you know. And, yeah. and, you know, even even when I think back to that, it's like there was also, you know, ACDC when I grew up and so there's that guitar tone and there's Van Halen and there's that guitar tone Ty Tabor had his own sound uh, George Lynch had his own sound Warren D. Martini had his own sound and it goes on and on there are a lot of stuff in the 80s that was kind of generic and not like mm-hmm. a signature tone that were still decent um, um, and then you know also older stuff so you know like um, a lot of Aerosmith stuff I loved how you know. oh yeah guitar sounded toys in the attic and stuff like oh that my God. amazing yeah. amazing records um along with um well of course jimmy page let's see i mean that's that's led zeppelin yeah <laughs> big huge fan uh yeah i'm a huge fan too dave was there was there a variance in amplifiers by the eighties that, you know, people would be playing some amps from the sixties, from the seventies, from the eighties. And then, you know, things that might've been out of tolerances. And so people just the, the, the variation from amp to amp was so great. That's that, uh, that, that, that they, you know, it wasn't, everything was still hand built at the time, probably, or a lot of things were, I mean, is there, I don't know if it's it's so much that. I mean, I think all these tones were created because they the, the lack of options. So so you had essentially four input marshals, uh, you know, up until nineteen eighty maybe seventy six or seven was the first master volume Marshall. The JMP, yeah. Uh, well, it was yeah, it was a JMP, but it was an early version of a JMP. So 
It'll still look like a 70s amp, but that was the yep. first iteration. But uh, the, then the square switch one. So that's basically when the JCM 800 circuit came about. Yep. Um, so, you know, so when I was a kid, so the amps you had, if you if it was a Marshall, you basically had a, a JMP or an older four input amp, which was very loud. Um, or I guess later you had a JCM 800, which is a JMP. It's the same. Same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. Um, except a better, little bit better transformers. Mm. Uh, the funny thing is, when the JCM 800 came out, uh, I remember this distinctly. When it came out, it was actually known to be kind of shitty. Now everyone reveres it, but it was known to be sort of shitty compared to the old amps. The JMPs, even though it was the same circuit, were cooler. They were better. And they had better transformers, and that's why. But the 800 was crap and now the 800 is revered which is which is interesting mm -hmm. uh so you had these amps so the early amps uh, no gain unless you cranked them on 10 mm -hmm. um so you know people were experimenting with things to boost them you know this started way back with Jimi hendrix and, and you know just fuzzes and fuzz faces and tone benders and 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 different you know jimmy page is a tone bender and then or treble boosters, yeah, treble boosters a big thing. You put a treble booster on an old four input amp, cranked, and it's just vicious. It sounds, you know, that's like the early, <laughs> that's the early uh, Judas Priest stuff and stuff was all like old Marshalls with a treble booster, and so all the Brian May stuff was a Vox with a treble booster. Yeah, uh, you know, and uh, Brian May would also be a real signature guitar tone. Um, even Judas Priest was a real signature guitar yeah. tone. Yeah. Um, so they all created their tones out of what they had to work with and, and how they could configure it in some crazy fashion to make, make what they liked, you know? So, you know, if you fast forward a bunch of years, so now, you know, including my amps, I mean, now you have these amps that can do gain and can do this and that and, and, and can sound great but a lot of people buy the same app they all sound the same you know right so, so 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 you know in the 90s you had rectifiers right so rectifiers right. were huge in the 90s everyone had a rectifier well guess what everyone also sounded basically the same that's right and uh and then some of the the older players that had this old stuff got rid of their old stuff and got new stuff and they play a rectifier now and and you're like, oh God, what happened? No, <laughs> no, it's gone. What happened? You know, and um, I don't know. I just think you just didn't, you know, you, you had to create your own thing. And also, you didn't have the internet. <laughs> you know, you didn't, I, you didn't have a million people telling you how to do it. So you're just, mm -hmm. well, if I series this into this, I've I put this. You know, George Lynch was telling me he had a. a, a there was this Tascam porta studio thing little mm -hmm. you know thing that he figured out that if he plugged into it and put it into the front of an amp like through it hmm. it, it would do this crazy gain thing and boost the amp in a certain way and i forgot how he said he did it exactly but he like he didn't let anyone know about that he was like hide it under the console with michael wagner and stuff and no one knew it was there and but he was plugging into it into the front of the amp to boost it and you know all this crazy stuff 
Uh, you know, well, that, that goes back to Richie Blackmore too. You know, so you had Richie Blackmore with a tape machine also going into the front of a, 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 you know, the Marshall Major or something, and that was boosting the amp in so, in some way. This is really just barely remember that, but yeah, yeah. I went I went backstage uh, at at uh, Crossroads, and I was looking. They had all the uh, gear lined up for the bands ready to go on. And I saw Jeff Beck's rig and, and Peter Frampton's rig next to each other. And Frampton was playing through an early 70s Marshall, it looked like. And and my friend Peter Stroud, who's, who lives he lives right here mm-hmm. in, oh, in my neighborhood. Right. Peter's a great guitar player. And, um, and I asked Peter, I said, did you see their rigs? Yeah. And I said, do you think that's what... Um, do you think that's what Frampton played through back back in the day? He said, he very well could have been. It was early 70s Marshall. Mm. Um, and uh, and Beck was playing through two. He had three amps. He had two um, Marshall hand-wired plexis with, with uh, checkered cabinets, but new, newer ones. Mm-hmm. And then he had a 50-watt, um, I don't know if he had a 50-watt JMP maybe that he played through, that was front-facing. The other two that were mic'd were back-facing. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, uh, but it was interesting to see people's rigs and see it was great seeing real amplifiers and things like that. And yeah. the guys, the guys all had great tones. You know, I mean, Jeff Beck, though, it's like play uh, through well, anything sounds the same. Yeah. I mean, not a, <laughs> I just I watch his hands. You're like, wait a minute. He just doesn't it's like yeah. where do those sounds come from? You can hardly even see him use his whammy bar. And his, I'm looking at his left hand and all these crazy sounds are coming out. He's so yeah. amazing. So, amazing. yeah. I, my one of my favorite performances by by him was the Ronnie Scott video that he did. Oh yeah, I love that. Um, so, what kind of stuff did he play? Was it more blues based, or was he doing his classics? Or um, trying to remember what he played now. Um, That's cool. Just curious. Hmm. Jeez, I'd have to think about it. I can't remember what song, what songs he played on his on his. He, he played like he only played about six tunes. Each person, like like Frampton, played three songs. Um, I remember he played "Do You Feel Like We Do" and and while well, my t- guitar gently weeps. And I can't remember what else he played and and um, and uh, yeah, it was. It's hard to remember. I was just in. I was just mesmerized by watching him play and just. Yeah, he's amazing. You know. Just you hear see the hear the sounds come out, and you look at his hands, and you just can't quite. Like, <laughs> wait a minute, is he playing a guitar? Like, how does that? It's unbelievable. Yeah, he's so unique, such a unique, yes, a very unique player. I mean, you know yeah. his he's playing. You know Jeff Beck is playing when you hear him. That's just yeah, one of those guys. I did I did a video um called the guitar nineteen twenty nine through nineteen sixty nine mm-hmm. and um. And uh, I, I, uh, I think that's the one. And my brother called me, and and we were talking about all the performances in there. And he goes, "You know the best, what the best playing was?" And I, I said, "What?" He goes, "Oh, Jeff Beck." And I was like, "Yeah, I think that was the best clip I had in there. Maybe it was like seventy to seventy nine or something." But um, mm-hmm. uh, he's like, "Yeah, nobody sounds like him." I said, "Yeah, it's true. Nobody sounds like him." Like nobody really sounded like Hendrix. Nobody sounded. I mean, really, all these guys. I mean, Clapton. They all had their own um, kind of unique playing style. But Jeff Beck did things that nobody really could mimic. 
Mm-hmm. That's that was the thing. People could kind of mimic things that Clapton played, phrases, things like that. But Jeff Beck was so his playing was so unique. It was um, it's it's impossible to 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 really mimic without it sounding just like him. It's interesting, and, it, and just n- never does. Yeah, but he 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 almost seemed like he was tamed in the Yardbirds because uh, he wasn't as flamboyant or in, in that type of way that he was playing in the Yardboard, Yardbirds. He kind of fit that mold. Um, yeah. I think I've said this story before. The, the, I don't know if you've ever heard of the guy. The guy who was the manager of the Yardbirds at the time is Giorgio Gamelski. You ever hear? He, he actually was he was the early manager of the Stones also. Okay. Well, he, well, he owned this building in Manhattan, which was a, a band practice building. And my band used, when I lived in Manhattan, we used to practice in there all the time. And he had gold records on his wall. And he would tell us a story, his, his days of working with, uh, with, with uh, the Yardbirds and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, just interesting how Beck just completely changed once he was out of the Yardbirds, you know. Um, but anyway, I, let's go back to, I actually have a question um, from my cousin, Randy. I want to throw out a shout out to Randy. Um, he said, have you ever written a song for someone else and then regretted that you didn't keep it yourself? Me? No. 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 I, uh, I only write songs. I only wrote songs. I've written a lot of songs. Um, I've had a publishing deal pretty much on and off since the early nineties. I never wrote songs for myself. I only wrote songs with other people for their own records. Mm. So, um, uh, because I'm not a singer, I, I never felt like I was compelled to write songs other than with, with people that were singers. So, okay. I, there's nothing I could do with them. That's why, you know, so you write a song and I couldn't sing it. So, right. Right. I was never, never inspired to do that, okay. but I love, right. But I love writing songs. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. but just no regret. No regret. Here you go. (laughs) Um, We have a super chat from Modern Vintage. Thanks, man. Appreciate you watching the show. And thanks for everybody who's watching the show. We've got tons of questions and and people in the chat. We will get to your questions, I promise. Um, Rick, we're actually on, like, going over on time. Um, Oh, no, we're actually at 90 minutes now. How are you doing? You got more time? I'm great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because we got, let's see, we got 216 people watching and uh yeah so hey everybody thanks for watching so let me get back to the super chat um he said rick and dave are there any artists and guitar tones in gent modern metal that you think are big influences like corn with seven strings regarding new metal um i mean for me um i you know i um know the guys in periphery and i thought they had they've had some really good guitar tones on their records and misha has a has a great misha and mark i mean all the guys jake they're all great great players and um and even though they use uh, you know model they'll use axe effects and everything they they will put pedals in front of them and they they spend a lot of time with their tones um and uh they they typically have very tight tones and very tight parts and everything so um yeah so i mean bands like that that uh i mean i don't think that they like the term gent necessarily but Mm -hmm. yeah i would agree periphery periphery is good 
you know, frankly, I don't listen to a lot of gent and modern metal. Um, so I'm, I, uh, I'm kind of out on this. <laughs> yeah. I understand what you're talking about with like corn and seven strings though, with, you know, back when that first kind of hit, um, that was a, like a huge, I mean, they were, they were huge with that kind of tone. Uh, you know, I, I was, uh, first time I met Misha, I interviewed him for my channel and, uh, and we were talking about, um, uh, he has a pedal called the horizon device that is basically it's, it's a high pass for the guitar before it goes in the amp. And I always used to do that with, with low tuned guitars. I'd work with a lot of bands that tuned down to B or had seven strings. And I always would put something like two tube screamer or an EQ pedal in front of it because the amps would always just fart out. Hitting yeah. it with all that low end, they're not, they just couldn't handle it. So you right. just would shelve it before it goes in the input, and it sounded a million times tighter, mm -hmm. even, even those low notes, you know. Yeah. And and uh, and people didn't realize a lot of people trying to record these low tuned guitars without anything in front of the amp, and it's like these amps weren't designed for low Bs to go go in the. Yeah. I mean, Dave, you're the expert on this stuff. Yeah, right no, that, that's that's true. Well, well, here's here's the ba the basics of it is this. Uh, the thicker gauge string you have on your guitar, the darker and bassier the guitar is going to sound. Now, it doesn't matter. If you put a set of 11s on a guitar that you normally have a set of 10s on, it gets thicker and bassier. And to the extreme, it gets much thicker and bassier. Yep. And in turn, you're just kind of splattering that first tube stage. And it makes total sense to high pass uh, going in, so that doesn't happen. Um, and uh, the, the funny thing, and this this is something I've always said that's kind of interesting too. So, you know, everyone now this this is going the opposite direction. So uh, a lot of your great guitar players like Billy Gibbons and and Tony Iommi and all this stuff use very thin strings. Yes. So they used eights. On a lot of stuff. Jimmy Page. Uh, Jimmy Page, I mean, too. Yeah. And uh, if you think about a stock four-input vintage Marshall, when you crank it, uh, uh, it some people can deem it as maybe muddy, um, maybe not super tight. Uh, depends on the player that actually is playing through it, I've noticed, too. I've noticed players, from one player to another player, their hands can have a different amount of bass in them. It's very, very interesting to watch because uh, one player will play through something and it'll sound muddy. The next player will play through that same four input Marshall and it sounds plenty tight and fine. Um, something to do with their right hand and how they mute and how they attack a guitar. Um, so, you know, everyone always comes back. The guitar players always seem to come back still to this day. To the Van Halen thing, right? How did he get that tone and this and that? And, and part of it was the fact that he had nines on his guitar, but not nine, nine, uh, nine to forty-two, nine to forty. They were Fender Bullet strings, and it was nine to forty, so it was even lighter on the low strings. Well, guess what? You put that set, that kind of gauge, into a Marshall. It, there's not much low end there, right. uh, so it sounds tight. Yes, it, it sounds tight. Uh, and so 
I don't think you really can capture that tone even with an old amp or any way you're trying to capture that tone without those light strings. And it's nines, was, nine's a half step down, too. Half step down, right. nine or some sort of tuning close to that. Some of yeah. those songs aren't exactly tuned to pitch. Right, right. right. <laughs> I was talking with uh, with I talked to Dweezil Zappa last week, um, or yeah, last week, and uh, was asking him about uh, we were talking about Eddie, and then uh, about string gauge and and uh, and about this exact topic. And I said, "Is it true your dad used sevens?" And he goes, "Yeah, well, he had like seven to thirty-eight, mm-hmm. wow. and he said he had banjo strings on the top. And we talked about how all the old guys back then." Well, they were young guys. They all Billy Gibbons, uh, same thing. Strange. He's like everybody used eights or or you know lighter. Mm-hmm. That was just what they did. And and uh, you know I would have bands come in here that I I'd, I'd produce and they would be tuned down to C. And I'd take my Les Paul and tune it down to a drop C or even lower. And they and with tens on it or nines. And they'd say, and I'd play it, and it'd be perfectly in tune. And they'd say, how do you do that? I said, you just have to control it with your left hand, with the pressure. You can't press too hard. And it's mm-hmm. all about feel. And, and these guitars can, can be tuned way down and still be in tune. Mm-hmm. It's, all about, it's all about your technique. Well, you can also not, hit, you know, you, you have, yeah, you have to change entirely how you strike the guitar with the pick. The gauge of pick you're using, yep. uh, uh, you can't use a a, you know, a quarter thickness pick right. with strings that light. It doesn't right. work. Right. And now, now I'm not so sure if everyone, but I, I gather that lighter picks were used also with a lot of these players. I think that's true. Mediums or, or maybe even thins. thins. Yeah. Um, which makes sense with the string gauge. Another yeah. interesting thing that when, when the, when the first Wolfgang guitars came out with, with, with Eddie and even with the Ernie balls, the frets were pretty small, the very first ones, you know? And uh, the interesting thing is if you really think about how he uses, what, what string gauge he uses, and it's tuned down a half step generally, it makes sense to have the smaller fret because you're not pushing down on the string and pulling it out of tune. Right. Uh, you know, too large of a fret with that light of a gauge string, you're, you're, you better be careful on your technique mm-hmm. um and it kind of dawned on me one day i'm like oh wait that makes total sense <laughs> that's why well you know, we used to hear people do uh you know minor third major third bends all the time too well you can't do those with with freaking 13s or anything you know i mean these guys were using incredibly light strings that that's how you get those crazy high bends jimmy page and stairway you know mm-hmm. at the very end and i mean these well you know the whole the whole trend stopped with that once uh, Steve Ray Vaughan came came around. Everybody's like, "Oh, he's using 13s or you know." But, but it sounded massive. It sounded amazing. <laughs> you know, I heard that uh, somebody told me that Stevie Ray that he started having problems with his left hand later on. You know, near the end of his life, and he actually went to lighter strings. I don't know if that's true or not, or if anyone knows anything about that but i heard that he started getting a lot of had problems with tendonitis in his left hand from using those really heavy strings and so he actually went to went to lighter gauge strings dunlop 6000 base frets big frets big heavy strings but if you watch a bend it just it just freaks me out every time (laughs) 
I'm like, oh, I know how thick that string is. <laughs> right. It's, you're just like, it's like a feet. It's like, wow. It's like a strong, strong man. Comp- yeah. Just amazing. Um, and you know, the, the other funny thing too about that, it, the interesting thing is, you know, Ed, you use those light strings, but if you ever shake his hand, um, the man has a death grip. Hmm. His hands are so strong. And it's 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 really interesting that he can yet keep everything in. Well, tune. he must he must have a big reach too, Dave, because uh, I I did uh, the the ice cream man solo was in one oh, of my yeah. top solos of all time, and the opening lick. So I I I um it goes from twelve to sixteen to nineteen. It's not tapped. So I called up I called up Dweezil and I called up Phil X, mm-hmm. good friends of mine. I was like I said to Phil, I was like, dude, can you play the uh, Ice Cream Man solo, and he goes, "Yes, man, that first lick is really hard." And uh, <laughs> then I called. I was like, uh, "He's like, why are you doing it for a video?" And I had Phil like Phil played on a video of mine a few weeks before, and I was like, "Yeah." He goes, "Yeah, that might be that might be a little tricky there." But like, so I was, he goes, "I think I think he said you should call Dweezil. I bet he I bet he knows the place." So I go, I call Dweezil, and and uh, and I'm talking to him. He's like. Man, that first lick is really hard. <laughs> and, and you see Eddie, you know, is, you know, was 23 when he's doing it. And you, there's only one video on YouTube of Eddie playing it. And, and they immediately cut away from him mm. when he's playing the rest of it. Because Van Halen was, was really particular about cutting away when he's playing stuff. But the first lick, he brings the guitar way up near his head and he plays right. it. Yeah. But his hands must be pretty big because that he has no problem grabbing that. And that yeah, he, is a he, he monstrous is a huge, stretch. He, he can take it, the the his two outer fingers, you know, and just like stretch the living. I've I've watched it in person, and it's just like you look at it, you're like, ow. Yeah. The wow. other person that can do that crazy well is Jakey Lee. Mm-hmm. He can he the the stretch that he can do it. If you watch, uh, you know, if you ever watch, there's a there's a video where. He was at a clinic or something, and he was showing how all the people get bark at the moon and other things he did wrong. And he's showing, well, most people say it's played like this. Well, it's not. And then he explained, but you watch him do it. It's just painful. Yeah. It looks painful. Yeah, he would stretch his whole hand down the, you know, like, yeah, yeah it was crazy. Speak, um, have you ever had wrist problems, Rick, or, you know, as a musician? Only, you know, it's funny. I've only gotten tendonitis a few times. I have an old um, Gibson country Western 1957. I have 13s on it. So I would do, sometimes I do sessions where I play a lot of G and C add nine and E minor, you know, with the barring the, or playing the, the B and E string at the third fret. And, um, and I would playing a bunch of songs like that. I get tendonitis and start getting tendonitis in my elbow, but luckily not really, but the, the things like that, uh, that thing on Ice Cream Man, I you know watch Eddie and he plays it between his first and second finger, and I can reach that. And I, when I was younger, I no problem I could play that. But as I've gotten older, it's it's I have to do the stretch between the these fingers. It's easier as you get older. But uh, um, yeah, but I, I I'm lucky that I haven't haven't had any problems or anything like that. That's good. I've That's got good. I have I have tendonitis in my right th- or I have a uh, like some arthritis in my right thumb. So so. You know, if I try and do a Metallica thing where a lot of downstrokes and everything, I just can't do it anymore. I can't do super fast downstrokes. I I don't know how James Hetfield does that anymore. He's a, he's you a know? monster. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, great. You, you know, that, that's interesting. So uh, Scott Ian, 
so who also does mm. the crazy downstroke stuff. Yeah. Scott Scott was telling me when he started uh, to play with his wife Pearl and uh, her band, um, he he would have to do a lot of um, more strummy stuff, you know, and more more stuff that was just anti uh, his style. And he goes he goes that was painful. <laughs> so he was having problems with that because all his life has been the downstroke thing, and he's like a machine. Oh yeah, machine, yeah, like one of the best. Um, sitting in a room with him while he's playing that kind of stuff through an amp really loud is you, just totally entertaining to watch because it's just such like a machine gun going off. It, it's, uh, it was, uh, I remember, I remember a few times when we've done stuff together and he, just like watching him like that. I'm like, damn. <laughs> and he, and he, people, people that can do fast downstrokes like that. That's, that's really amazing. I'm, I'm, I, I'm jealous of that now that I can't do it anymore. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, I mean, it li- literally for me, it just gets so painful. I, I have yeah. no endurance with it. But, you know, you see these guys so yeah. fast. It's unbelievable. Well, through the show, um, a company reached out to me. Dave, I think I mentioned this to you. They sent me they were like, hey, we do these wrist grips, these wrist straps. If you ever have any problems with your wrist, if you like it, maybe you'd mention it on the show. I was like, all right, sure. Send them over. Um and they sent them over, and I actually really liked them. So, and I, I actually had uh, some wrist problems just a couple weeks ago. And um, actually, it wasn't even a couple weeks ago. It was just when I was when I was sick, and uh, I was sick the other day, like like last Thursday Friday. or Friday. And um, yeah, because I went to get a flu shot. By the way, sorry for re- having to reschedule with you. Yeah. So, um, but I ended up getting like really sore in my wrists, and like I started having this really weird reaction to this flu shot. Like my my joints were starting to get stiff and everything, and I was feeling like this. It was it was ridiculous. Um, I've never had one, nor might I ever. Well, after that, I told my wife. My wife's the one who's always telling me, "Go get your flu shot. Go get your flu shot." You know. So I was like, "Okay, okay. you know." And I always do it. And I've never had a problem. And this year it was just like, wow. Like within an hour of leaving the doctor's office, I already started feeling like very weird. Um, mm. But anyway, I wanted to mention Wrist Grips. Check out this company, uh, wrist-grips.com. They, brought, they sent me this, uh, this product, and it just goes on your wrist, and I, I was like, oh, cool. So I, I've got two of them, and it actually helps, So, which I thought it was actually kind of a nice thing that they sent it to me. So, But I want to go back um, to a question, Rick, that uh, is there a favorite Van Halen tone of yours? Um, you know, I, I love a lot of the tones on fair warning. Um, I mean, really my, 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 you know, the first couple of records, the guitar tones are just, I mean, that's what I grew up with. I was in 10th grade when the first record came out. That is really my, you know, I remember my friend bringing in, have you heard the new Van Halen record? I said, no. And then this guy, Matt, he came into my, to our, we were in a band together and he brings a record and he had his stereo set up and, and he puts on eruption and I just, what, yeah. is, what is that? Oh my God. What? What? I got and were you really playing depressed. guitar at that time? Yeah. Oh yeah. I was in a band at the time. Yeah. Right. I was in bands in the seventies. And uh, <laughs> when you hear that come out and you're, you know, 16 what are we years gonna old. Do now? Right. Like, <laughs> oh my God. It was, it was, uh, you know, 
you're thinking, uh, I was thinking, like, yeah, pretty good player and everything. Then I hear Eddie and I'm just like, uh, yeah. Right. So, you know, we were having a discussion the other day with some people and it's like uh, pretty much the, there's two guitar players that made the biggest impact uh, in, well, I guess our lifetime. Um, Jimi Hendrix first, because when he came out, nothing sounded like Jimi Hendrix. It was just like from outer space for people. Just like, what the hell is going on here? Uh, with a massive impact. And, and then later, Eddie Van Halen, the same thing. What the heck is going on? You know, like, what is he doing? But you, there's all the other greats in between, but that made that huge of a change on guitar. Those are the only two. And that was within about 10 years of each other. People mm -hmm. don't even realize it's not that long. I, I told the story on my uh, on my greatest guitar solos because I had Hey Joe in there, um, even though everybody said, oh, you should have put uh, um, along the Watchtower. But mm -hmm. I put on Hey Joe because... When my brother John and I were learning to play guitar, I'd play rhythm for him, and I play. We'd only play "Hey Joe" because that was that was the first solo I ever learned, and that was always a great thing to play over. So we knew one scale, and I played for ten minutes for him. And then as soon as it'd be time for me to solo, he'd get up and walk away, and we get in a fight. So my mom got sick of it. My mom <laughs> was like, "Okay, I'll play rhythm for you." My mom was in her fifties at the time. She knew. She says, "Tell me the chords." I said, "Okay, it's C G D A E." That's cool. So my mom would get acoustic guitar, and my mom would play chords while I practiced soloing. My mom was so cool That's that awesome. she would play Jim. She would play "Hey Joe" for ten minutes straight while I worked on my soloing. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. So. What kind of anyways, what, but did she, did she like playing guitar? Or was it was that an she, her dad was a guitar player and two of her sisters were music teachers. They're they're still living. Two of my aunts and her brother was a, was a, was a musician, a bass player, and so it was a, they were all musicians in my mom's family. My mom played rudimentary guitar. I mean, but she could pick up any song and learn it by ear, you know. And and I mean, I showed her the chords once, and she's like, "Yeah, no problem." She could strum it and has had great time and. That's awesome. But I mean, my mom, I'll play rhythm for you. Okay. <laughs> just, so I, just so I don't have to hear That's you guys cool. play. That's so amazing. So anytime I'd be like, mom, can you play rhythm for me for a little while? I want to work on my solo. She's like, yeah, okay. G give me the guitar. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm strumming away, you know. Hey, Joe. That's great. Yeah. So. Great to jam with your mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that, what, what do you think your parents would think about your uh, your online fame and the way things have kind of? Oh, they know? would love it. I wish my dad died in two thousand four. He, if he would have seen YouTube, he would have been on the on YouTube constantly because all of his he was a big music lover and um and just would have loved it. My mom died in two thousand sixteen, but she used to send me videos constantly guitar players that she would find she'd find these crazy classical guitar players jazz guitar players or, or chet atkins videos or something my mom was really she wasn't a musician and everything but she loved all kinds of music and loved the guitar especially so she'd find these crazy guitar players that she'd send to me yeah. like youtube links i was going through my email the other day with looking at emails my mom sent to me and uh hundreds and hundreds of emails with videos attached to them. Wow. YouTube, YouTube links and stuff. It's, 
it was so cool. I mean, it was, and, and both my parents loved the fact that I was a musician. Right. Which is uh, very rare. Great. Yeah. Right. They you should have been a doctor. Right. Yeah. No, that was, they were glad I'm one of seven and me and my younger, I'm second youngest. My, my younger brother, we both are guitar players and, uh, and my mom, they, my parents used to make us play for the whole family every day after dinner. We had to play stuff. We'd have to sit down and play like two, three songs at least. That's fantastic. Wow. So, That's don't, don't, don't you wish yeah. that was that happened more today? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Instead of let's let's play video games. Well, I know you're. You know, you clearly have a big influence on your kids. Um, or at least one of you, one of you, uh, um, who's amazing, uh, has amazing ear, which reminds me, there was a question I'll get to it. BMO asked, is your ear training course coming soon? Which... Yes. Uh, probably next week we're doing beta testing right now and fixing all the bugs in it. So next week will be the ear training course, uh, will be, uh, will be out and it's been two years been working on it. So, wow, that's exciting. Cause uh, I, yeah. I, can... I could use that. Um, but are your, do, do you have that kind of influence with your kids about music and stuff like that? Or My kids, my son Dylan, who has a ridiculously good ear, doesn't like music at all. Um, my my um, two daughters both have great ears. Um, but my youngest is the only one that actually listens to music. She's six. So I, I saw her with headphones on the other day. And I walked over, she had an iPad and she had Spotify open. I didn't mm. even know she knew how to do it. And she had a playlist. And I said, what are you listening to? She said, the police. Nice. And I said, I said, oh, let me, let me check it out. And she, I mean, she, she loves music. So she makes, made, made her own Spotify playlist and sits there and was doing stuff on her iPad, listening to music. So maybe, you know, yeah. maybe one of them, they've, you know, they, they, we've got everything here. If they want to play anything, I own 10 drum sets, you know, yeah. I've got, Good. you know, I own <laughs> 10 bass amps and, and I, I have everything you could possibly want. And my kids are not interested in music at, at all. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, 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 I remember when my oldest daughter, who's now 27, um, was, uh, I don't know. She was in her teens. So she must've been 15, 16 or something. And out of the blue, and this had nothing to do with me, out of the blue, her favorite band, music, because she liked music, and her favorite band, out of the blue, and I'd never shown it to her, Led Zeppelin. Oh, wow. And I'm like, oh, man, I love you more now. <laughs> <laughs> she, she found it, loved it, still loves it. That's awesome. <sighs> great <laughs> very proud parent that yeah day. exactly that's rewarding you're like okay i did something right yes <laughs> I, I must have done something right yeah you know i was i was uh uh i first time i met steve Vai, we were video chatted and and he had he had uh he was asking me about about my son dylan and he said he told me he said man frank would have freaked out if he saw dylan he said yeah can i could I talk to Dylan? I said, yeah. So I go upstairs and I was like, Hey Dylan, um, need you to come downstairs and talk to somebody. He's like, who? So this guy named Steve Vai is a guitar player. Well, I'm busy. He's talking to my wife. And I was like, no, get downstairs and talk to him. He's a famous guitar player. He's like, I don't care. 
And I said, Dylan. And then my wife says, Dylan, just go downstairs and talk to this guy. Okay. Like this guy. So Dylan comes down and, and Steve starts asking him questions and Dylan, this is probably about three years ago or so. And, and Dylan was, he's 12 now. So there's nine. And so he has a Pokemon shirt on and he's, and I introduced him to Steve and Dylan, Dylan's a per, really personable kid. And Steve, and Steve says, do you like video games? Yeah. And he goes, my two sons like video games. Have you ever heard of world of Warcraft? And I was just like, Oh geez. <laughs> anyway. So then Steve said, uh, do you know, you know, do you, do you like the guitar? And Dylan's like, yeah, I like, it. okay. So Steve get, grabs the guitar. He goes, you know what this is? A whammy bar. Right. And, and, uh, and then Steve starts playing some stuff and, and for Dylan on the video chat and Dylan's like, Ooh, that's kind of cool. And, uh, and that was, the, that's like the only time I've ever seen Dylan engaged. But I mean, if I could play as well as Steve Vai, maybe, <laughs> maybe Dylan might be interested in, uh, in the guitar or something, you know, it's like, <laughs> I was like, man, I can't get it. I better start practicing or something, Steve. You know, start but... using more of whammy bar. Install <laughs> uh, the whammy bar. That's what Steve was saying. He's like, once I saw the whammy bar, I knew I had to have one. I was, so, I was thinking yeah. of that when I was watching his your interview with him, and I, I was thinking about that about that uh, about that talking to him that time. Yeah, he's he's great. He's such a class act. That guy. He really is. What a great guy. Yeah. I saw a great talk at the NAM show with him and Vinny Caluda. Um, that was fascinating that they hadn't seen each other in, in 35 years since they played with Zappa together, which was unbelievable. Mm. They both live in LA and that, they, they, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, they had just seen each other just before they got on stage, like uh, a couple weeks before they ran into each other, but it had been over 30 years. And, and they said, live like what? They live within miles of each other. Right. That's right. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Um, so oh, I want to thank uh, Waterford Giant. Uh, thanks for the super chat. Appreciate it. He said, great show. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so here's a question that I, like, you know, I, I mentioned. I was trying to think of questions that I'm not exactly sure if you've tackled. And maybe you have tackled this before. But do you think um, music is a like in our genetic, like learning an instrument and being a musician is a genetic thing. Is it, or is it an, you know, like an innate or is it, you know, something that you, like a skill that you just learn. And I'm just curious. Um, I think that certain people are genetically predisposed to having good technique, whether, you know, they have hands like Eddie Van Halen or they have a good, you know, innate sense of rhythm because of, they're really coordinated, you know, and they, they, uh, but I think that most people are, you know, can learn music. Um, you rarely find people that are, tone, that are really tone deaf. I've, I've met them, but, but almost, <laughs> you know, but it's, uh, have you recorded on, them? I've re- <laughs> recorded plenty of them. <laughs> the ones that had record deals that were singers. Oh, well, uh, like, what key are you in? <laughs> Um, what do you mean key? I was like, never mind. <laughs> but, uh, I think most people are, you know, uh, can learn music. Um, so I, you know, I think, but, but there is a genetic component. There's, you know, I mean, um, I, I think all kids can, can have perfect pitch if they, um, or most kids can, if they, develop it while they're babies that's the only time i believe that that uh, that that is something that it's one in ten thousand people have it but 
I think you have to develop it in the first nine months of life. That's my, my theory. Hmm. Um, by being exposed to, um, a lot of different kind of music that, that, uh, is chromatics and that uses a lot of different keys. Um, I think that, that, that all kids can develop it. So I think that, you know, I'm not sure how much genetics play in, in music ability, but definitely, definitely there's some people that just have unbelievable technique that that don't have to work very hard at it. So I think some of that is definitely Mm -hmm. genetic, just like some people are fast runners, you know, and other people are not. Yeah. And so, and some people have a creativity in that, you know, matched with their skill or whatever it is that they've learned as being a musician that then that creativity part is really an interesting part of it that you know i'm not sure if that's genetic or if it's innate or like again if it's a learned thing and the, the other thing i was curious about is um why do you think it is most of or it seems like most of people who have written the greatest music was when they were in their young young 20s or early teen you know like those those young age you know those young ages okay so i have this i have this 30 year old um uh theory that most people write do their all their best playing and writing before they're 30 Mm -hmm. the beatles were no one had turned 30 when they broke up uh lennon was just about to turn 30 um harrison was 26 when they broke up it's hard to believe they did 13 albums and and harrison was basically in his mid-20s um, Tom Petty is one of the only people that wrote great songs in their late thirties. I can think of, but typically most bands had people in their twenties. And I think that, that people's brains are even say, same with improvising. I think that people can improvise, um, better in their twenties cause their brains are faster and they're able to come up with things quicker. Now, now historically composers, as they got older, most of them wrote their best music, whether it was Beethoven or Bach or, you know, a lot, a lot of classical composers wrote their best pieces, but they weren't improvising them. They were improvising as when they were young and they were probably far better improvisers than they were later on. But they had a light, lifetime of experience to write the stuff. But that doesn't really go for rock musicians and songwriters. I don't think I think a lot of it is experiences and um, and your brain. um I think you just become more jaded or something and, and it's hard to write songs. There's something about the creativity that seems to be lost after a certain age. I mean, not that people aren't creative and they can still make great music. I mean, you know, McCartney's still making great albums into his seventies. Well, at least like not great albums. He's still making albums. I don't know if they're great. Um, And you know, the the, the last one that I listened to was like chaos and, the, the chaos album that he, that he had come out with several years ago. But yeah, I mean, you can still be making music, but is it great music? And is it really great created creatively? And it seems it's so, like you said, under 30. I wonder why that is. Young brain, young music. I don't know. Um, Petty's uh, record that had, uh, um, in 1989, they had free fallen on it. Had a lot of big hits on it that he was, I think he was 39 years old when he did that record. Oh, wow. but he's one of the, one of the few that I can think of that, that was, that was over way over 30 when he did, you know, and in his forties when he did wild flowers and things like that, some unbelievable records, but 
his, you know, typically it's people in their twenties. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Dave, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's interesting how that happens too. Yeah. I mean, uh, so what, so why, why is a great band that once made great records, not making still great music is, have they said everything they want to say? Are they too comfortable in their life now? Do they have no sort of strife or, or, uh, being poor or anything, you know, they're, they're, they're too comfortable in their mansions. What are the hell they write about? You know, it's like <laughs> before it's like, yeah, I was struggling to eat, you know, <laughs> when they were writing these records, you know, and, uh, maybe that's some of it. Maybe, uh, maybe, um, I think that's some of it. Um, the struggle. I mean, there's exceptions. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, I, Exceptions. Let's see. Who would that be? Uh, uh, you know, I mean, Aerosmith's done a bunch of records that later in life uh, for them that were great records. Um, Neil Young. Some, yeah, I mean, there's some outside writers involved, but, you know. Um, uh, there's yeah. not a lot of examples, though. I've thought a lot about yeah. this, actually. Yeah, no. There's not a lot of good examples, no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well. Then again, Alice in Chains last several records. I mean, Black Gives Way to Blue was a good record, and they're all over. I mean, Jerry's fifty something now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a couple years younger than me. So, of course, they had a lot of a re- lot of time in between to write to stockpile songs, though, Dave. You yeah, know. True. True. I mean, he had he had, uh, but <laughs> I mean, he was writing for his own solo projects, but really, mm-hmm. he had a lot of time to stockpile material before that record. The Foo, the Foo Fighters, their "Wasting Light" album. That was that was. Well, Dave Grohl's that that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Dave Dave is just constantly writing. I, I, Good, great songs. I mean, just, just, just like a machine, like a machine. Genetics. Uh, yeah. Genetics. <laughs> like, <there you> go. <laughs> spitting out, like spitting it out like it's an automatic donut maker or something. You know? like, uh, He's got the formula. He knows how to do yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and from what I understand, he's a very good barbecuer. Yeah, <laughs> well, he, he does that stuff with uh, Dimebag's wife, and yeah, I've seen him. He's always cooking for someone. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, we always oh, got a, a super chat from Modern Vintage again. Thank you, uh, Dave. I'm going to play 100 Deluxe tomorrow. How would you set it to sound like Jerry's JJ 100 Heavy Tone? So many switches, combinations, and limited time. Uh, on his heavier tone, because like Jerry uses a combination of two amps. So one is set more gainy and one is set much lighter in gain. So, so, um, saturation, uh, well, all the switches in the back down, except the saturation, the, uh, the, the, uh, the frequency switch on the front to the left, the response switch to the right, uh, and 
then other than on the BE channel. Uh, I mean, you can probably get it from there. I mean, if you turn everything at half, you know, you, you're going to get in the ballpark. Cool. Well, enjoy it. Like to I be like honest, that. it's in his hands. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hate to tell you that, but, um, man, when he just plugs into an amp, he just plays rhythm guitar and he plays all the classic riffs and stuff. And you're just like, oh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> okay, so what... Dave, what gauge strings does he play? Do you know? Tens, I think. Okay. Pretty sure. Hmm. If I recall. And he's half a step down, right? I don't know that for a fact, but I'm pretty sure it's tens. Yes, he's... Well, uh... So, some are even lower. I mean, some of the later stuff is down to C. Hmm. Yeah. So that's step a good down question. and drop D. You know, I, I'm not positive on all the gauges, but... But uh, yeah, he does drop drop string, so it's like they're like half step down, and then still a drop. Well, so, yeah, well, he's got great, great talent. I could find out. <laughs> That's cool. Well, enjoy the amp, modern vintage. Have um, have you played a Friedman amp, Rick? Yes. Yes, I have uh, played uh, played a few Friedman amps that are amazing, and um, I I don't have any in my collection. I don't really. I haven't bought that many amps in the last. I mean, honestly, since I stopped producing, which was three years ago, I really I pretty much stopped buying stuff, and and even before that, I was I don't I I haven't really bought anything, um, not many things since probably two thousand five or so. <laughs> so I've had all these amps for, for most of them for uh, for years. Um, I would love to have a Friedman or two in my collection, though. So there you go. Um, I don't know if my wife would like me to have a Friedman or two in my collection, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's always the... so. so uh, ha... the guitar player that I just. Uh, uh got an amp to said something interesting. Uh, he goes, um, he goes, yeah, it's really simple. It's, so if I buy an amp, I just have to give equal value uh, monetarily <laughs> to my wife. So, and, and then she doesn't say anything. <laughs> there you go. So I'm like, so what you're saying is if you, if you buy this, Amp from me for let's just say three thousand dollars. You have to give your wife three thousand dollars also. Mm. He goes, "Yep." <laughs> yeah, that'll pre that'll prevent you from I mean, buying. This is stuff. a relatively relatively uh, uh, professional guitar player, you know that that is playing, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, my my wife is is cool about about stuff. She doesn't. She never really mentions that much about gear or anything. She never says anything about gear. She. I don't even think that she notices if anything. I had a drum set. I got a, uh, a drum kit last month, and um, it just showed up, and she didn't say anything about it. Brought it downstairs. Not one, not one word about it. Like, not what is that? Right, right. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, <laughs> you know, that's the way it should be. You know, I mean, right. That's <laughs> why I, I, I think so. I mean, my wife's super cool about it. The only time, the only time was recently after I had just bought that Kemper and I've been, uh -huh. on, a, and I've been on a slew of buying shit because I'm a gear whore, like as I was telling you before we went live. And um, we were at Sweetwater Gear Fest 
and I'm walking around mm-hmm. with Sammy Bowler, Dave. And when, mm-hmm. when we go into the used or the uh, open box tent at Sweet, uh, you know, uh, Sweetwater, yeah. and I'm thinking, because I'm a lefty, Rick, so okay, you know, so I'm, you know, I'm used to just walking into places and they don't have shit, right? There's nothing there for me to look at. Yeah. So, so, but as soon as we walked in there, Sammy's like, "Oh, dude, you see this Gibson acoustic, lefty," and I'm like, "Oh my god, really?" It was, uh, you know. And just he just started handing me all these guitars, but the Gibson acoustic just stuck with me. It was like the big jumbo acoustic. I can't remember the the, the name of it right now. Um, and I remember I texted my wife a picture of it, and I said, "What do you think?" And she wrote another one like that. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I that. and it, it right, and that was the end. I was like, "Okay, all right, uh, you're right, you're right." <laughs> you know so mark would you suggest uh, my son dylan is a lefty if you were to play guitar would you suggest that he he's very left-handed would you suggest making him learn right-handed uh, that's a great question um my personal opinion on it is make him learn left-handed okay that's my personal that? opinion i i because i think if it's naturally the way that they feel then they're going to feel better as an as a musician and feel more comfortable about it and be more into it. If you're making somebody go against their kind of natural way of doing something, just to appeal to being able to buy more guitar. I think there's a lot more lefty guitars that are available these days than it used to be back in the day. It's not like it used to be where it'd be impossible to find a lefty guitar. So, mm-hmm. so I think it's I think it's fine learning lefty personally. Uh, it's it's sort of interesting when you think about that. You would think. So I'm right-handed. You would think your right hand would be the fretting hand. You know, you would you would just just if I'm just thinking about it, that would make sense. So that I should play a left-handed guitar, but in the same way, vice versa. So, uh, but I guess not. It's it's interesting. I think so. because you write with your hand, the picking motion is very much like writing with a uh, yeah, there or something. You go. Yeah. So so you get get used to that that motion and that just kind of feels mm. natural my, my son's left-handed i think i need to get him a left-handed guitar yeah i think it, it'll help inspire them more to play um i think just back sure, in the, got, sure, sure you got an extra mark i i yeah i've got a few <laughs> I'll, I'll send you one um yeah i i, I it's funny because for me i started out on drums rick so uh and i played open-handed so instead of uh-huh. my, my feet are right-handed or you know are right like righty and my hands so i kind of play like uh well simon phillips can do both simon phillips yeah yeah, but simon phillips tends to do that open-handed kind of stuff and that's how yeah. i played and then when it when i went to guitar it was like it felt so natural the rhythm hand is your hi-hat hand you know and that's just felt so natural to me to do that so it was like I, yeah, I had that question right off the bat. Like, well, maybe I should just learn righty. You know? So how do you explain the guys that take the right-handed guitar and play it left-handed, strong righty? Like Eric Gales, for instance. 
Well, they just take a regular guitar and they flip it upside down. You're saying? No, no, I understand. I understand the concept. I think, but I think that, that holy uh, crap, that's backwards. It's it's interesting because I have a, a left-handed guitar that I got for my son that he never played, a, like a little Squire strung left-handed, and and I'll pick it up and play it right-handed, and you just play such different licks, and you can bend that. So you pull down on that E string, and it's mm. amazing. You do you just do licks you would never think of doing. Right. That's so, true. um, I yeah, think it's really, like, it goes with gravity, you know, like I, I always get a big kick out of watching Eric Gales. Cause you watch Eric Gales play and who's an amazing guitar player mm-hmm. and you just look at it and it's just, you, you can't watch <laughs> cause it's like, it's like, this doesn't make sense. Wait. Okay. Wait. Okay. It's upside down. Okay. Wait. <laughs> yeah. Do you know who's another guy like that? Doyle Bromo. Yeah. The second. Yeah. Yeah. He, he plays yeah, Clapton. Yeah, he's yeah. really good too. He's a great player. Was he there at Crossroads? He was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> he's such a talented guy. I, you know, my one of my guitar teachers in high school. My guitar teacher in high school was a lefty, and uh, he played guitar for ten years. A right-handed guitar flipped over, so he could play equally well on a, on a. Then he learned how to play left-handed with a strung normally but he could he could take my guitar and flip it over and play he was a jazz player and he could mm. play all the weird chord forms both ways it was un amazing That's, wow that is amazing I mean, I, yeah i have a hard enough time just playing normal so yeah <laughs> yeah 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 i mean the lots- coordination that takes is crazy I, I always had a hard time i can't play drums uh i, could, I can't do i can't get the coordination right i mm. just it's not i don't know but uh, maybe I could if I practiced. But... <laughs> yeah, that would help. I suppose anyone can do anything. <laughs> you could probably get it. You know, I taught my maybe daughter. Practiced enough and banging on the drum. I don't know. <laughs> I taught my daughter how to play drums. Um, she wasn't getting it. You know, like the whole, you know, okay, well, two and four, you know, the whole thing, you know, and try to help explain one, two, three, four, and put your foot on one and two, and, you know, like that whole thing. She wasn't getting it. And finally, I just, the way I taught her was I sat down on the chair and just sat her on my lap and held her hands and put her feet with me. And I was like, just watch how I'm doing it. And she finally was able to get it by, you know, as I was doing it with her. Um mm-hmm. And then it, she doesn't play, but but she she can do a real mean four four, <laughs> you know. So that's but, good. That's a good start. Yeah, it was a good, you know at least I got her to to that you know so that's that's fun. Um, speaking of that, what instrument do you think people should start learning first to be the best musician they can be? Well, I mean the easiest one to, for people to learn is the piano because you can be you can start at four four and a half that's that's probably the only instrument that you can start at that age no you know guitar does not work i don't think for anyone under seven is probably the youngest you mm-hmm. can there's just too many moving parts with playing guitar uh, isolating the strings with a pick and or even finger picking i think it's too difficult um but uh violin and the and the um the violin and the uh piano are things that youngest kids can start at four and a half on either one. So. Yeah, that's good. That's cool. Good to know. Yeah. Um, We've got a question from the guitar guru network. Um, 
He said, better to have a brilliant artist and a so-so producer engineer or a so-so artist and a brilliant producer engineer. Well, that's yeah. my friend Keith. Um, yeah, we, I, I know Keith well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, better to have, what is it again? Better to have a brilliant artist and a so-so producer engineer or a so-so artist and a brilliant producer engineer. That's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, how do you answer that? Better to have a brilliant artist and a, and a brilliant producer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You can't, you can't have the trade-off. That's cool. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the funny thing... Uh, well, there's... There's production and then there's engineering of records and stuff and 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 obviously a great artist. Uh, a, a great example of a great artist with an awful sounding record that sold gazillions of records was Alanis Morissette. Mm -hmm. uh, that that first record obviously sold. I don't even know what the final tally was, but it's some ridiculous figure. Yeah, and twenty million. Some. It's an awful sounding record. Adats. Horrible. Three just mm. not good. But does it matter? No, the songs were great. The songs were um, amazing. So um, sometimes people get caught up in the wrong stuff, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, although we all would love to hear great sounding records, but ultimately, in the end, the song's got to be great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I go back to when you talk about great albums but early black sabbath is just so poorly recorded and you know and could just use i don't know if they could ever go back and remaster that stuff but i don't know do you do you have the same opinion of, I, I, I never want to hear stuff remastered generally oh, no okay. personally uh keep it the way it was because generally speaking and not and this is not always generally speaking they tend to ruin it that's right um, they they tend to ruin it. Now, there's been definitely some exceptions to this rule. This the rule. I mean, some of the remastered uh, stuff that Jimmy Page did with with a mastering engineer and stuff came out really well. And, and you know, there's there's some exceptions out there, but generally speaking, they just ruin it. <laughs> yeah. I remember I remember there was a there was a period in time when. Uh, Eddie Van Halen, uh, and this was in his, well, shall we say his dark period, um, was going and deciding to remaster some of their classic records. And his big trip was pulling the compression off of them and stuff. Mm. And pulling, like, the compression off the master and everything. And, and, and just, and it just, it, there's there's some of it out there. It just doesn't sound right anymore. It's just ruined. Yeah. It's just ruined. It's just ruined. I mean, it's 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 still the song, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm I, I most of the stuff on on Spotify. Uh, a lot of the old records that I hear remasters of are just so shrill sounding now. Um, they they just add a bunch of top end to these things, and and I think the labels do it so that they can claim that they can own the. They, they it gives them extra time with the masters because they consider them new masters mm. and I think they just do it just to do it and they're and most of the time they're not mastering I mean Universal had everything burn in a fire you know mm -hmm. yeah and 
they're 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 remastering from stuff that's been put to digital in the in the late eighties on sixteen bit, you know, and so it's mm-hmm. so it's a bunch of uh fakery going on there. Hmm. Anyways. <laughs> I wonder if there's gonna be so. a, a suit eventually about that whole fire. I don't know. they must they must be settling out of court with that because uh um I did a video on it and, and I know. Yeah. YouTube really throttled it back the first week the story was out hmm. and I was getting no views and there was no, you know, I was thinking like, this is not right. They're doing this on purpose. And they announced that, that, uh, universal and YouTube were partnering on, on oh. some stuff on, re- on remastering. Um, this came out like the week, the week that the, that the story broke. Wow. Uh, they were partnering on redoing the, all the videos into making them, I don't know, 4K or whatever, and redoing the sound on them. So, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, I know. Um, like Jimmy Page was on this like remastering kick every couple of years with the Zeppelin stuff. It seemed right. Yeah, but he was doing a good job of it. It, it wasn't really like he wasn't ruining anything. Mm-hmm. I think he took careful time with with what what he was doing. Um, so. They did. Uh, they did. Um, I did a mastering session with George Marino right at the time in '99 when when he was doing the Zeppelin DVD stuff, and he. I told the story in in, in uh, one of my videos that uh, he said Jimmy came in. Jimmy had all the final, all the masters in his basement, and he said all mm-hmm. the tapes were, all the boxes were crumbling, but these were the original mixes. And he brought them in. They baked the tapes. I think that they bake them at 250 degrees for, I don't know, six hours or something that long time. And then they played, they did one pass on them um, and, uh, and put them to, you know, through really nice converters and then took them from digital and then mastered them in digitally. Um, And then he took the, took the masters. I mean, I think the masters, they arrive in a, in an armored car and everything, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and he brought him back home with him, but he had all his own masters, all the Zeppelin masters he had. Is there a way to that transfer? From very t- careful with that. What's that, Dave? He's very, very careful about all, all the Led Zeppelin, um, shall we say the, uh, lineage and the history and, the, and, and, and he should be, and he, it's all very, very, very smart by him. Mm-hmm. Well, and he owns all the music, right? I mean. It's amazing. Yeah, as far as I know, he paid for the records. I know he paid for the first record for, for uh, 4,300 pounds he paid for Zeppelin 1. He paid out of his own pocket. Wow. <laughs> amazing. Can you imagine? 4,300 pounds. <laughs> 4,300 pounds. He paid Glenn Johns and paid for the studio time at Olympic and all that. And I he probably owned, owned the record. I probably spent that much on just buying that album over the past 30 (laughs) over cassette and a track and album and then digital and yeah (laughs) it's funny man. it's funny to read that stuff though to to think that he had the foresight to do all that it's unbelievable that's from being a studio musician though he was very very shrewd yeah yeah now is there a way to if he has the original tape to transfer that to another set of tapes so you don't have to worry about the you know you wouldn't you wouldn't do that yeah no. you wouldn't do that no no it's gonna have the same problem down the road i mean it, you know it's it, and and also with the tape available eh, yeah. <laughs> okay i was just curious it's it's... resolution uh you know digital master great yeah. computers 
Gotcha. Someone was just talking about this the other day about a, a film editor I, I, I know is doing now. He used to be a film editor. Now he's in uh, working for Universal and on um, film restoration. And he was telling us all about that. And, and that's very interesting. It's the same concept. You know, it's the same thing. You have these uh, this film that's deteriorating. It's it's falling apart, and uh, and now I mean you can, you know now you know four K six K you know you can you can transfer this stuff to digital and have it still look like film. Um, yeah. And he in he, there's a restoration process, and he was telling us all about his, the restoration program that he was using, which I can't remember what the name was, but there's a, a program that you know that will will take the the dirt off the film. And we'll take, uh, you know, you have to do it. You have to be careful. You can't let it do it automatically. You have to go in and, and frame by frame. And and some clients just want a little of the dirt removed. Other clients want it pristine. Mm-hmm. So if there's a scratch across the film, they can literally take it out. And it's it's, it's perfect. It looks exactly. And it was really, it, it was sort of intriguing. And it just, I sort of paralleled it to the audio uh, mm-hmm. restoration stuff. And um yeah, it's a problem. You know, you have all these deteriorating masters, or they don't know where the masters are. Or they burned. <laughs> I mean, I I know people that have done records that have no idea where their masters are, nor did the record company. Yeah, it's just, it just doesn't exist anymore. And then that goes back to your question I saw on one of your videos, which is probably the video we're talking about, Rick. Where you were like, "Well, then who owns it? If you don't have the master, then..." Do you actually own the music anymore? Yeah, that's that's a that's a question for lawyers. You know, if you're out there exploiting this and saying that you've got remasters of it, and well, what are are they really remasters? Because a remaster implies that they're from, made from the master. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the master, what are they remasters of? Does somebody drop a CD in the computer and rip it off there and then master it again? I mean, what is that? You know, mm-hmm. it's it's so shady. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Tough. I mean, I, I personally would rather listen to stuff off CD if I have the CDs. Um, I mean, if I had a CD player hooked up, but I still have a <laughs> CD player. But I went to. I actually went to a gig last night. This is very funny. I haven't been to a gig in ten years in in Atlanta, huh. and and it was a big band that was playing. That one of my buddies was like, "Oh, you should come out and see this big band." And I was like, "Man, I don't like going out and seeing music." So I go out to this thing, and and there was more people in the band than in the audience. The band was like 25 <laughs> people and there's about 10 people in the audience. And they were saying we have, it was their CD release party and they're selling CDs there. And I said, turned to my buddy, Jack, I was like, I was like, dude, do you have a CD player? And he goes, no. I said, do you know anybody with a CD player? He says, no. I said, why is this guy selling CDs <laughs> I, in my car? Cause they're, That's it. Cause they're jazz musicians. Oh. And I said, <laughs> well, there you go. Right. <laughs> That's funny. The big bands still sell physical copies. It's, yeah. it's interesting. They still they still sell CDs, and people will buy them. Yeah. Um, of course, how they're going to play them later is a different story. Well, I, I think they, I, I think they buy them, Dave, to just to support the bands and everything. Then they yeah. end up as coasters. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Or you buy it and then you rip it. And now you've got your digital download, and then the the, the CD just sits somewhere. I've done none that. of my computers have seat. None of my computers have. Well, that's the problem nowadays as well. <laughs> I, I have a new Mac that doesn't even have. It's like 
nothing on the I've, side. <laughs> like, I've got a, I have a USB. I've got a CD player with a USB. Uh, yeah, I do. End on it and stuff. So. Yeah. Oh, there you but go. But I still have. All, I never got rid of my CDs. I still have all of them. Smart man. You see, I went. Yeah. I actually, I kept just a few of the real favorite ones, like my some of the Beatles ones that I've I've got, and like they came out with a box, like that box set of the U.S. singles, yeah. the mono and stereo. Yeah. I kept a yep. bunch of st- box sets and stuff like that, but then just the random stuff, I just I burned it all and sold it. But I like to be I like being able to go back because you can't find the original masters that were done on CD because they've been remastered so many times on Spotify and on Apple, I, you know Apple Music and everything. Yeah. I want to compare and hear the the actual CD. I'd rather take it and rip it again from my thing and and uh, and listen to them that way. Then, right. then listen to them off Spotify. Yeah, I hear you. Well, I, for yeah, me, I have I, all my stuff. What's that? I have all the CDs still. Oh, good for you guys. That yeah. I ever bought. That I ever bought. Well, actually, some are lost along the way, but that are ever that I bought relatively. Um, what I wish I had was all the vinyl I had when I yes. was a kid. And because uh, in recent times I had. Uh, hooked up a vinyl setup again and and god that sounds good <laughs> it does it really is a you the, can turn the minute you put on the real original copy original pressing of of something you know like from say van halen 2 and you listen to it on the turntable through the speakers through the old receiver you listen to it and you're like oh yeah that's what i remember in my head Oh yeah, I, I have I have Van Halen too, and I have all my original LPs. I've got Van Halen too. I've got I've got them. I've got those first four records on LP sitting in the next room, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't have my turntable hooked up right now. But uh, actually, no, I do. I have it hooked up right over there. But uh, it makes a difference. I love I love listening to to, to vinyl, and um, I. We would play it for my kids all the time. Used to we listen listen to vinyl. I thought it was fascinating. For uh, I have a two inch machine here in, in my studio as well, which is great. Oh, nice! I've recorded, done many records on two inch. So, and you I, have the- I, I have I have a reverb. I have I have a, a plate reverb. Even I mean I'm EMT. Yeah, I know. No, just an old like oh. uh, like uh, one from the '60s. It was a custom made one. Somebody gave me, but it works. But the two-inch tape, where do you find your tape? It's expensive, right? Yeah, well, now that I'm not producing, I'm not buying any, but I have a, I have a few reels that I bought. and You know, I bought a Vintage King back. God, it's been price. Uh, I, I haven't cracked open a roll. In, well, it's, it's been three years, actually, since the last time I did a session on tape and everything. And mm. um, But, you know, people that say, oh, yeah, well, you know, digital sounds as good as tape. It's like, have you ever actually used a tape machine? Because it doesn't sound as good as tape. Yeah, you're not going to say that, by the way, if you do. <laughs> I mean, uh. I, I, I did a video where I, I actually had uh, drum tracks that were tracked into Pro Tools and off off of tape. I don't mean through, not through the tape machine, but put to the tape machine and then and then put back into Pro Tools and then listen to them back to back. And it's, it's, it's pretty dramatic, the tape compression that happens if you hit the tape hard and Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't even look the same. You can't. The transients look completely different, and it just sounds so different. It sounds so much better. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so essentially, yes. So what we've done is made everything harder for us. Right. So, so it used to be, we have a tape machine and a console and pretty much you put the mics on something and roll up the fader and you're already pretty much there. And now it's like, God, I got to move that mic. I got to, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No. I always find wow. that the, that the what you know when you record a digital with vocals, you get these weird artifacts that are so harsh sounding. And I always used to think, why is it none of the records that I listened to that were recorded a tape, not, none of them have those weird artifacts on them. Mm-hmm. This this whistle for the 4K whistle, as I call it, you know that um, that you're hyper, you know, doing all this notch filtering to try and get rid of these things and Did you really ever- weird out of tune artifacts. Do you ever have guys, when when you were recording, want to use uh, digital, you know, for their guitar, and you know, not real, not real amps? I'm just curious. Um, Are you talking out of it? No, no, no. Because every pretty much most of the the projects that I would do, they'd come here. I tell them not to bring their gear. Uh, yeah. Unless they were a drummer that had a really weird setup, but that's why I've got so many instruments. Um, I can set up any kind of kit. I've, I've, you know, 26, 24, 22 inch kick drums, multiple, you know, I mean, I've got 10 drum sets here, you know, yeah. so what, I, what do you need I, to bring? Uh, yeah. What do they need to bring their gear for? They don't need to bring anything. I can cover any kind of setup with any size toms or anything. Right. Bring your guitar. You're good. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I, know I would, we... I would, I would never like to have people playing my guitars. You get these guys that come in, they'll tr- play my guitar for 20 seconds and then the strings are rusted. <laughs> that would drive me nuts it's like what did you just do to my guitar yeah that, that that's a personal thing you know yeah i agree with that oh yeah my hands sweat a lot like sweat what do you they turn strings acid to rust hand. yeah acid yeah. hands yeah acid hands i don't have that steve, thankfully steve lukather is like that is he yes i remember years ago when i was a kid working for andy brower studio rentals who he was a client um we had to restring his guitars, and literally after what? Forget the whole session. Forget it. The, the, the strings are literally, literally rusted. Like <laughs> like they've been on the guitar for ten years. Like wow. just taped on. We we'd always like look at it and go, "What? He the... was at the session for two hours." <laughs> And the, the springs look like they've been on for 15 years. Right. Sitting outside in the in the rain. Amazing. It was shocking. And sitting in salt water. Right. Yeah. Shocking. Wow. That's amazing. Man. Yeah, we, I can't wait to get him on the show. So, you know, going back to the uh, top three guests that you were talking about before, Rick, for, for our show, Jimmy Page. I know, Dave, you want him on. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to happen. I mean, it's just, you know. Um, I wish. I want Floyd Rose on. I, I really want to talk to Floyd Rose because um, he changed the game and he's a big innovator. But, um, but, oh, but Steve Lukather. Mm-hmm. I want to have him on. I know we, he's just on the road all the time. He's on the road all the time. He said yes to me, and 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 but he's constantly on the road, and I oh, just yeah. would be easier to catch him when he's home. Uh, 
you know, I, I, I'll work on that again. Yeah, no, you know, we'll get him eventually. He won't be, yeah. he's going to get tired eventually. <laughs> he'll, he'll come home. Um, but hey, I, I know we're, we're running on like almost two hours and 40 minutes here. We still have 214 people watching. Everybody's really hanging in there listening to us. You guys are awesome. Um, it's getting late. How are you, Rick? Are you all right? You get. Well, it's, I'm okay for a few more minutes. Okay. All right. You, you let me know when you're, uh, you're ready to roll. Um, so another question I had for you was, uh, how do you pick the songs for what makes your, what's makes the song great series or, you know, for, or for your topics on your channel? Um, usually those songs, uh, it depends on what mood I'm in. I usually will pick songs that, that, uh, I did the chili peppers yesterday. I was just, I don't know. I wanted to hear the chili peppers and, and, uh, so I was like, okay, what do I got? And, uh, I, I try to find songs that are in, I usually do with the bands that, um, a lot of times I'll do two songs by a band. I'll do one. I'll do their most popular song. Then I'll do a song that I want to do. Um, so I did, um, under the bridge yesterday because it's a very important, one of the most important songs of the nineties, I thought. And, mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of really hit, great hidden stuff in the track. A lot of it that Brendan O'Brien actually played. There's organ, there's piano, there's, uh, be, beyond the, the, the female vocals that happen in the end, there's a lot of overdubs mm -hmm. that, that are there. The tune is very sparse until the end. Plus it has a very weird form because it goes to the out chorus after the second chorus, it goes right to the out chorus vamp and, and it's really unusual an unusual form. So, but I typically just do songs that I, um, that I'm in the mood for. Mm -hmm. I might do, I like, I want to do, there's, I want to do Judas Priest song and, and, uh, I'm going to do this XTC song. I, I don't know. I just like to really vary it. I've done periphery. I've done, I've done a lot of new, newer bands and mm -hmm. I did a band called Pliny. That's a band from Australia. That's, the guitar player's 26 instrumental prog metal band. That's really great. Um, so I, I've, uh, you know, I've, I've done, done a lot of different. Yeah. You've been all, all over, all over the map. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but I know that you're limited also. And because there are blockers, there are these bands that will take it down. So you're limited in that sense. You, you... Well, it's interesting. Like I've done ones that have gotten blocked and then they got put back up. Like I did whole lot of love and it, it was up for about five weeks. It got blocked and then it got put back up. And I talked to somebody at, I don't know where it was at Warner or something. And they said that it had to have been someone from the band that okayed it to go back on YouTube. Hmm. I had, yes, was taken down and I wrote to John Anderson and told him that, you know, after it had been up for a couple months, it got taken down. He, it got put back up. I assume it was because of him. Mm. So, so um, the only one that's ever gotten taken down and not put back up was this Fleetwood Mac. I did go your own way. And, um, and I've written to, I tweeted at Lindsey Buckingham a number of times. A Radiohead took my, vi my video down. They put it back up. I, I went on Twitter and, and called them sellouts. And, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, radio has just another corporate rock band now. Look at that. And I, <laughs> I did at Tom York at Radiohead, a few, few things like that. And uh. then a few weeks, a few weeks later, Matt mysteriously reappeared on the, 
Wow. On, on my channel. So hopefully Fleetwood Mac will put it back on. But they're the only only uh only other blocker. I mean, I haven't done Pink Floyd. I haven't done The Who. I right. don't want to spend 16 hours on a video and have it get pulled down immediately. You know, Queen. I mean, it's ridiculous. I haven't done these things. But the the Eagles are are 100% blockers. Guns and Roses, everything instant block. It's amazing because it's more. It's just more exposure for them, and they're not preventing anything from happening. No, I mean, it gets demonetized. It gets monetized to them. So I spend 16 hours making a video. They make all the money off it. I'm mm -hmm. not even trying to make money off it. Mm -hmm. They get all get demonetized. Every one of those videos do, except for the Tool videos that I did. Tool, actually, the two videos, not only did Tool shared my two videos that I did of theirs on their website, on their Facebook, and hmm. and on the Tool website, and they, were, and I, they were monetized. And Tom Petty's estate let me monetize the videos, which is amazing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear that the tool guys are, are nice and, and get Oh, it. they were, they were great. Yeah. I, I actually, totally I'm, cool. I'm friends with the guy who does their art for their albums and their tour posters and stuff like that. Amazing. Cool. Amazing artist. Um, yeah. So cool stuff. Yeah. I, it's just, it's amazing how these bands are just pulling shit. Pull, pulling stuff down and blocking and so everything you do is demonetized all your videos no every what makes the sun great is wow all i mean not everyone but you know out of the 75 i've done 72 are demonetized or whatever 71 are demonetized wow so, so instantly yeah, and a lot a lot of the videos like i did the the you know the 20 top 20 solos of all time and i played all the solos myself and i had 20 demonetization things so even me recreating them got blocks or i mean not got blocks but got demonetized got demonetized so 20 different artists are are making money are splitting the money off my video the seven hundred thousand views or whatever i've had so far wow so they're all all making a few cents so that's youtube paying them that's how that works yeah YouTube keeps 40% of the money anyways. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, and then I know that from our channel. <laughs> yeah. And, and also whatever super chat money you get as well. They keep that as well. Yeah. Keep a percentage of it. Yeah. Of course, yeah, exactly. 30. So it's, it's, yeah. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, you know, but I don't, I, I decided early in my channel, I wasn't going to be limited by what I did by worrying about, being whether the video is monetized or not i didn't care so once i once i realized i figured that out i was like i want to teach what i want to teach or talk about what i want to talk about i don't care if the video gets demonetized mm -hmm. so it's very freeing the only thing i care about is blocking because because demonetization no problem blocking that's that's censorship and they shouldn't be able to do that i don't think i think it's bs all right i agree with you i agree with you and um so getting so when a lot of your content is being demonetized and you're full time on your channel. So I know you've got your Beato Club um, and the Beato book. And do you want to talk about that stuff as we're getting towards the end? And promote? No, I mean, that's 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 pretty much I make I make money on my selling my book and I sell coffee mugs and T-shirts and 
and I would be auto club and that's, you know, and then I got my ear training course coming out. So that's pretty much how I make a living. And I mean, all the stuff that you see here that people see, you know, it's most of it I've had for, that I've collected over the last 30 years and everything. And, um, not everything. I've got a few, few, I've got a few things that are newer. Um, but, uh, for the most part, most of it is, is, uh, is stuff that I've had. I have a, I mean, I've, I've got another 15 amps in my other, in my studio that's down the hall here that I can't fit in this room. And, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I have the world's most expensive backdrop there. You know, you know, people think I'm in front of a green screen, which I think is very funny. Really? It's like, yeah, it's like, this is a green screen, right? I said, what are no, you talking about? Studio. <laughs> and then I, sometimes I'll walk back there and people are like, wait a minute, those are actually real. I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> really? That's people think I'm in front of a green screen that I've like got a you know like that's a guitar center or something back there or whatever. <laughs> Come on. Uh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Crazy. Yeah. Like you would have a green screen. Um Rick Osusa says uh he gave us a uh super chat. Thank you. Uh our studio has 16 track two inch machine however we don't have much analog outboard gear beyond seven 500 series mic pre's can we get can we can we expect to make more wait, wait i'm sorry let me read that again can we expect to make good great recordings with only tape machine seven pre's and a state-of-the-art uad setup uh you'd be better off if you had 16 mic pre's and then, you know, take those seven and buy a bunch of, uh, buy some BAE Neva copies, which are great. Uh-huh. I, I love, I love BAE stuff. Um, and you'd be better off. It's, it's nice when you can go to tape and you can, and you can actually EQ before you go to tape. Uh, try and get the stuff as close as possible to, to how it's going to sound. Cause it's, it does come back a little bit darker and stuff. And, uh, so, anyways, that's that's the only thing I would say on that is to um, is to you know have as many you should have as many mic pre's as you have uh, inputs on your tape machine. Mm. I think that's me. Yeah. You know, Dave, if I were to get one of your amps, what amp am I missing back here that I would that I need to to get out of uh, <laughs> out of all all your amps? Come on, there there must be one that you that you say, okay, yeah, you need this. Uh well, considering most of the stuff you well, except for the PV. Um I mean B one hundred deluxe, our new thing, is probably the most versatile. Mm-hmm. Uh, there you go. Of of all that. You know, uh, but then again, if you wanted something simple that's pretty classic, the Dirty Shirley amp we have is pretty cool. There you go. Uh, a little more classic sounding, one channel, kind of simplistic. Um, one of those two. Cool. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, the dirt. I love the Dirty Shirley too. That's a great sounding amp. I just, so- I just need, I just need an excuse, Dave. <laughs> what's your favorite well, i needed some in- input and and a little and, and and an excuse well dave said that i, I you know there you go <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <it's> your wife <laughs> right exactly. look and it's on tape it's on video 
Right, I'm missing something, and I and and it was uh, it was it was uh, I have the evidence. There you go. Here. It's on video. It's a proof forever. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, perfect. So, out of all your amps, Rick, what's your uh, what? Do you have a favorite? Um, I don't know. I, you know, I don't. I don't know. I like them. It's the different ones in different days. Mm-hmm. You know. Good answer. I used my JCM 800 yesterday for my my Chili Peppers video and. And, uh, you know, I'll, you know, I used my high watt custom 50 for, for video the other day. And I mean, it's just, it really just depends. Mm-hmm. I like to, I like to switch it up. I, I like to use different stuff and, and, um, I like mic and cabinets and, um, uh, you know, I just love this. I, I love having a lot of different amplifiers. They all kind of do their one thing that that uh i mean i have a lot of pedals and everything but i like it when the amp does most of the work to be honest with you so do i yeah so do yeah. i i'm not i'm not well i'm not really into distortion pedals and going on the clean channel or or even pushing even pushing an amp like if it can do it all and from the amp i don't even need to push it you know with yeah. a boost or anything like that i'd rather not yeah i don't know why that is but you know, I have I have a, an assistant that had never played through a real amp when he got here, and he went to school for for, for guitar. He only played through modelers, and and he was he. Wow. I said, hey, I said, hey, can you plug in a uh, plug in that MXR flanger? Because I was I have a seventy eight flanger about nineteen seventy eight. I was doing a Van Halen thing, and so he plugged the input of the flanger into the amp, and and I was like, and he, and I said, dude, what's up with this? Like what? He had no idea how to plug in effects pedals. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I was wow. like, man, you're in, you're in the wrong studio here. Right, right exactly. Like, we got to go through some basics with the how to plug in pedals and uh, you know and how the stuff works. But he when he hear when he heard the you know the real things through speakers, he was just blown away. It's a whole just yeah. It's like wow, it's amazing. Well, you know what? I love your quote. You know, I can't. I can't even begin to like contemplate that. You know, it's like I get that all the time, and people, oh, I, you know, I, I, I bought one. I have one of your amps. It's, it's my first two amps. So I have a question. I'm like, what? First two amps. Okay, and then, and then some question that I just like put my head in my hands, kind of like, oh god. I, I sometimes think with with uh, people asking me questions about their amps, I, I sometimes, occasionally get the feeling that maybe there should be like a license, you should have a right. driver's license for your amplifier a little bit. Like you know, you sh- should have to pass the test before you actually get to have this amplifier. Or maybe you should start with like a cheaper little tube amp to start and work your way up to the the the, the Ferrari you just bought. Um, cause it, it's like some of the questions are just like, wow, okay, sure. I'll answer this, but <laughs> I should really know this. I saw one of the most amazing questions on the Kemper forum the other day. Someone asked, will the, will the, uh, floorboard version of the Kemper sound different than the rack version <laughs> of the Kemper? <laughs> I was like, why would it sound any different? 
It's the same freaking software. I, like what one, are you talking? Ones and zeros. Right. What are you talking about? Yeah, that was that made me crack up. I was kind of like, wow. Dave, let me let me ask you this question. If I have with my Tone King reactive load here, when I turn it all the way down, has has a line out, and I run it through a cab sim pedal here. I mean, it's not going to hurt the transform or anything, right? I mean, it's a reactive load and. Well, it's the is it the big the big tone king yeah the big big one yeah the hundred uh, one it should Iron be fine it's not really it's not it it is a reactive load to some extent it's not it's not really a reactive load okay it it's well it is um. I mean, am I going to damage gonna the transformer? If you're going to do that, if you're going to yeah. do that kind of thing, I would recommend, you know, like the the uh, the Surwan um, uh-huh. reactive load, or there's one from this company in Russia called Saint Rock or something. I think I've got uh, it. Uh, got, Michael Nielsen. One. I have it. Uh, the, uh, that one's great. Um, uh, it's it's cheaper. Too. I think it's the a good price. easiest to use is the newer Sir one because it's already got some uh, IRs loaded in it already, mm-hmm. and, or you can load your own, but it's already got some stuff loaded in it already, and it, and it works really well for that kind of thing. The the newer Sir load box. The, well, yeah. I had a friend l- lent me that pedal that that Cab Zeus thing, and and I didn't know if, how to try it out. I mean, it'll it'll. It's not gonna dirt well, damage anything. You know what you can do with that is you should be able to. Um, so does that have? I'm not sure about that pedal. So does it have a speaker level in at all? Yes. No. No. It's just line level in. Yeah. Oh really? Mm. Yeah. Yep. Looks like it. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Um. I mean, if any of your amps have a line out on them, you can take a line out into it and keep the amp running to a cabinet. Some of your amps have a line out on it, I think. Yeah, a couple of them do. Most most of them. Uh, yeah, a few of them do. You have a JCM800 over there? Yeah. That should have a line out. If it's an older one, it should have a line out in the back. Just run it to a cabinet, take the line out into that box, and you can, hey, you can make a comparison between the cabinet and the... And the IR. Yeah. Because you can do them in real time, same time. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good that's a good idea. That's a video right yeah. there. There you go. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah, so. That's cool. Um, let me see if there's any other questions. And because uh, I know we're getting it's getting late. I have to work tomorrow. And it's not West Coast Dave time like Dave. <laughs> sorry um no i think we've i think we've reached the questions i think uh we've had a great discussion rick you know oh Thank somebody you. just somebody just sent in a question right right as i uh uh, uh you want to get it dave yeah so so tips for a higher gain oh sorry uh Servando Flores said uh, tips for a tighter high gain tone from the Dirty Shirley. I know it's a saggy amp because of the tube rectifier, but I want to ask anyway. Boost, B-O-D. Dirty Shirley, yeah, our Buxom Boost. It has a high pass filter on it called the tight knob. And and if you use that and maybe you might 
uh, it's interesting. So that has an EQ on it and a tight knob. So you have a boost knob, you have a, a tight knob, which is a, a high pass filter. Uh, and then you have an EQ section. The EQ section you can use or not use. There's a switch on it. You can take it in and out. The EQ, the treble is boost and cut, but the mid and bass are boost only. So flat for mid and bass is all the way down to zero. And flat for the treble is center. Hmm. Uh, so uh, if you want to make it a treble booster, you can do that. Wow. If you want to make it, uh, you know, you can tighten up the low with the tight knob and then boost the treble so it's you know searing you can totally do that and actually with the dirty shirley it's incredible sounding because you get this tight thing but you get this this little bit of a tube rectifier saggy thing going on with that and it's just the, the combination is just just great hmm. so there you go there's your answer nice awesome super cool well we had a comment from richard friend and i'll, I'll leave it with uh his comment, he said, this show is so amazing, really. Uh, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, Richard. I was, uh, well, I'll read it anyway. <laughs> he said, this show is so amazing, really a shame there aren't more viewers for these. The Steve Vai live stream was amazing, though. Thank you. That, that's not the one I wanted to read, though. Um, but thanks for your comment, though. Uh, there was one that said, uh, this has been a great show, and Rick's been an amazing guest, but I somehow lost it in this chat that's moving super fast in front of me. So, um you have been a great guest, Rick. So, thank you. Yeah, I thank appreciate you. you guys having me on. You know, the, the funny thing you you say, you you know, Richard, you were talking about the number of viewers and stuff. It also has to do with what time we put it on. Uh, you know, it's 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 a tough one because I work all day. It's hard for me to do things earlier. Uh, and, you know, on East Coast time, it's it's kind of late for people. And often it's on a Friday night. We do shows a lot. Uh, tonight's a Monday night. Um, you know, but in the end, people go back and, and, and generally have long shows. So sometimes people can't even sit still that long to watch it. Um, but they do go back to listen to it. I have people, even in podcast format, they go back and listen to the show. And they'll have it on in background at their work. And, you know, and, and listening to, to us, I can't believe you guys do this, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, believe me. I mean, you know? when people write write in and say they love the show and stuff, and it it really it it goes a long way with me because I really appreciate it, you know. And and we have great guests like Rick, just you know, taking their time yeah. to uh, spend time with us, which yeah. is fantastic. Maybe if we did Sunday morning shows or something, you'd get you know more live viewers. I don't know, but you know, it's it's, it's a tough one to figure out. Yeah, yeah, but you know, at the end of the day, we've, we we don't have a million subscribers. I wish we did, <laughs> but um, but our views are actually pretty good, some compared you, to. Well, I I always say, you guys, you get them one at a time, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It'll come. So, I'm not worried about it, you know. Yeah, but it's it's all good. I mean, I we've. Or had if some... you know, if you get your 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 show shared on a million uh uh, uh news uh, channels because of something a guest said. Uh, you know, that's always nice, too. <laughs> yeah. Like, how many views does the Jakey e. Lee video have? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's good. It's, it's big, pretty big views. Yeah, because he... Because it got he, shared on every news outlet. He let it rip. <laughs> did you hear, did you see that episode or hear about it? Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Quite, quite, uh, quite funny. Especially when, you know, then... Uh, Nikki Six is like swiping him in Twitter and stuff. I'm like, oh 
God. How did this happen? Well, the funny thing is, like, was it you that said it to me, Mark? It's like he said all this same thing in 1980-something in Crank. He did. Mate. He did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I guess you, you, you said it, right? Yeah, yeah. I had, I asked someone, sent, someone actually sent me the article. Yeah. Of the magazine, and it was 1981 or something, which is, you know, just like after this happened. And he said the exact same things with even more detail. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. But, yeah, you know, I'm glad it still made the news. What can I tell you? <laughs> so, there you go. But, uh, well, Rick, thanks again. Everybody, check out. Yes. Everything music, um, Rick's channel. He's got great stuff. I'm sure everybody who's watching is subscribed already, but if you're not, check it out. Um, and uh, Dave, I hope you have a great week. Yeah. We'd also like to thank uh, Sweetwater Music, of course, oh, yeah. uh, for our show. If you guys are looking for anything, uh, you know, please check them out. And uh, there should be links below in the videos. So. I will click. I will put links below for buying stuff at Sweetwater. Make sure you check them out. Definitely. All right, guys. Rick, just hang All on right. after I hang up with, uh, yep. and uh, we'll say our goodbyes offline. And I hope everybody has a great week. Thank you for tuning in. You guys are fantastic. Really appreciate it. And we'll talk soon. And uh, our next guest actually is on the twenty fifth. Uh, I believe it's the twenty fifth. Let me look at my calendar here. Just want to make sure it's uh, Santiago Alvarez, who worked for, hey, hey. he worked for Marshall for many 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 years. So that'll be and that's on the twenty fifth. So two Fridays. All right, guys, take care. All righty.